At the signal, time will be out of joint. Wine. Yes, please. Vin. Vinem. Vina. Fuck. Robert Vina. Robert Vina. Should we mention that we're, dr- that we're drinking at 11 in the morning? Mm. I think the people will know. Mm. <laughs> Alright. Willkommen, Hebnu, and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird, and hauntological. I'm Sean, and as ever, I am here with Lucy. Hello. This week, we'll be looking back to one of the most stylistically and thematically radical times in the history of cinema and, indeed, of art itself, the years of the Weimar Republic in Germany. Okay, so uh, the Weimar Republic was uh, the regime set up in the immediate wake of Germany's defeat in World War One. It was its first ever kind of proper attempt at creating a democracy. And it was a politically fraught time when it was unclear what the ultimate political direction for Germany was ultimately going to be. In fact, after th- there were two declarations of a republic, there was the, there was the Liberal Democratic Weimar Republic, and then there was a uh, socialist republic uh, declared sort, sort of more or less simultaneously and it uh, uh, they didn't win and we also <laughs> saw a lot of a lot of violence between kind of communist factions and these sort of proto-fascistic factions like the Freikorps and there was also uh, more general things like anxieties about the fallout from the Russian Revolution the nascent USSR and influences of that spreading um, but at the same time the period from um, well, from 1918 onwards, but in particular the years from 1918 to 1925, saw a massive cultural shift in Germany's nascent democracy, uh, which saw a flourishing in art and culture most strongly defined by its cinematic output, as well as in music and art by figures like Otto Dix and George Gross. Um, and there, this kind of this came about through a number of key factors, uh, which included the abolition of censorship by the People's Council, the, the Council of People's Representatives, um, appointed by the newly christened republic, uh, leading to an influx of new ideas and new thought. But there was also a kind of just more general sense of cultural levity uh, represented by the breakdown of the old order and a reappraisal of the values and shortcomings of the ancient regime. This was one of the uh, most in- just was just one of the most interesting artistic and cultural and political periods in um, 20th, 20th century twentieth century history. Really. Yeah, yeah, and it was also kind of when um, stuff from abroad was ki- was coming into Germany in a much bigger way, and when we had jazz and abstract art and things. Um, and uh, this is actually kind of, this is a recurrent phenomenon we see in a lot of cultures uh, suffering a major military defeat, weirdly. Um, I think perhaps my favourite uh, definition of this was given in the in a book called Tokyoscope, Japan, the Japanese cult film companion, which I read many years ago, uh, where its author, Patrick Messias, uh, talks about basically kind of the psychological impact of a generation finding out its parents were always wrong. <laughs> There's something um, interesting because... Um... Nietzsche, in his uh, book Twilight of the Idols, actually says the same thing, um, but about the, about um, France, because uh, Germany really only becomes a, like a unified imperial power in Europe after the Franco-Prussian War, where Prussia, where the Prussian Kingdom defeats uh, France and Germany finally becomes a unified nation state. And uh, Nietzsche, who was always like vehemently anti-nationalist and had a special, he was anti-nationalist in general, had a special contempt for German nationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, says the most interest, like he says if you compare Germany and France France is so much more interesting as a result of its defeat precisely because it's had to reevaluate evaluate 
everything following its defeat by Prussia, while Germany can just be confident of its mission and never have to reflect on these things. Mm. Um, and also this was kind of facilitated by the um, post-war economic conditions to some extent, because the need to kind of capitalise on the influx of new trade uh, meant there was a degree of deregulation and um, just the need for uh, new things in the economy, I guess, and um, and which which kind of which often leads to a flourishing of an entertainment industry, both for needs requirements of escapism, but also um, the, the capacity for kind of DIY. But in cinematic terms, um, Germany was a relative latecomer to the scene. Um, cinema, of, of course, had existed in Germany uh, long, long before the war. But the the notion that cinema could be a profound and nuanced art form was dominated by uh, kind of the, the early French masterpieces of people like the Lumiere brothers, um, and in America by people like the massively racist D.W. Griffiths, whose um, 1914 film Birth of a Nation uh, would later be hailed as a precursor to the blockbuster films of the 1970s and 80s. Yes, Birth of a Nation, where the heroes of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, and from what I've, I've, I've heard on the grapevine, that like kind of it actually. Um, gave the clan their their aesthetic you know it, it introduced the idea of the white hoods and um riding on horseback I and think, stuff yeah i think they always had hoods and stuff but i think like it might have codified the really specific image we have yeah. uh, as a result of the fallout from birth of a nation because he did receive a lot of criticism for this film at the time it should be mentioned mm. he made a film about the evils of intolerance called intolerance in which he is the victim of intolerance because um, no one is respecting his right to freedom of speech, you know, to freely say, yeah, we shouldn't have black people in Congress. This sounds awfully resonant with our own current time. Nothing changes. Internet. But one of the, you know, the, perhaps the most, um, the most groundbreaking and the most notable and the most distinctive thing to come out of Germany during these years was uh, the rise of expressionist cinema. With regard to expressionism, I'm going to be referring to kind of two major texts that um, defined a lot of the early uh, scholarship on the subject. Uh, one of them is Siegfried Krakauer's From Caligari to Hitler, and the other is Lottie Eisner's The Haunted Screen. And uh, there's a kind of there's a key difference between these two texts uh, because Krakauer's book is while it's, it goes into a lot of depth in talking about the films themselves, it's very much driven by a philosophical and political position, which was trying to trace... His his whole thesis is that he's trying to trace some sort of um, recognisable evolution from the ideas in German film during this early part of the of the 1920s that over time would translate into, into the Nazi era post-1933. There's a very, very... If you want to learn more about this, there's in a, in a very nice and succinct way there's a very good video essay by uh kyle corgren who records videos under the name uh, browse held high okay. on youtube he's done an absolutely fantastic essay on a uh, video essay on uh caligari to uh, on caligari to hitler and also about he's he focused on krakow but he talks about like the uh the frankfurt school mm. more generally of whom krakow was he's, kind of a, he was an rec- associate he's like affiliate level because he because his whole thesis is driven by uh, a degree of kind of marxist scholarship as well as a very very distinct and well, a very recognisable and very often literal Freudian interpretation of how these things worked. That's actually something that is worth saying about Germany at this period because it wasn't just the defeat of um, 
the German Empire, which caused this sort of like reflection about the kind of society Germany wanted to be. Uh, for the left, there was also the defeat of an attempted socialist revolution in Germany following the collapse of the empire, um, where a liberal democratic capitalist republic is becomes ascendant rather than a socialist republic. And this is one of the things that kind of fires off the uh, the intellectual movement of the Frankfurt School because now because now it's the Marxists reflecting upon their own defeat as well, especially as they become increasingly aware of how horrifying Stalinism actually was. Mm. Um, so the um, so yeah, this like this just go, well, this goes back to what we've already said. This was a absolute. This was a, fa- a fascinating period to be alive. Mm. Um, the other major text, the, um, the, the Lottie Eisner's book, um, that is something that takes something of different stance. It was written five years after Krakauer's book. Krakauer's book, interestingly, came out like only about a year after the end of World War II. Uh, so um, Nazism was still something not only very fresh in people's uh, memory, but also something that hadn't really had the full weight of retroactive hindsight analysis. So he was really, really coming in on the ground level with a lot of this stuff. But one of the key questions that I think is is important to bring up in in relation to German cinema, as as well as being uh, dominated by um, by avant garde techniques and being that being the the primary legacy of cinema from this era, one of the things that is kind of inescapable is that the content is very very like more often than not extremely dark and fantastical. Um, and this is something people have blamed on the um, on a number of factors, including the the immediate defeat suffered in World War One, um, which Eisner has other ideas about. Where Eisner breaks from um, breaks from Krakauer is um, is kind of it breaks from a lot of other theorists on the subject because um, when a lot of people talk about German expressionism and German cinema of this era, um, there's a strong tendency to place a lot of the emphasis and a lot of the origins of this stuff on the very recent uh, breakup, you know, the the failure of. Um, the former German regime and the uh, the psychological shock, the impact of defeat in World War One, but. Eisner goes against that to some extent by recognizing that what we see emerging out of German cinema during this era is something that um, is very, very is very much um, an is is very much kind of an older tradition in uh, German culture as a whole, and this is something she kind of. Um, she she attributes to older traditions like uh, the the legacy of German Romanticism of the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, she talks about things like uh, the uniquely German taste for chiaroscuro, uh, which is um, art that uh, emphasizes the the contrast of kind of hard light and hard dark. Um, which one might perhaps attribute to the extremely dense forests that populate much of Germany and their plot. <laughs> Is um, uh, Eisner been proposing a form of uh, Sonden or Sonderweg uh, theory? Mm? The um, Sonderweg was one of the theories that came up that was sort of like produced to try and explain Nazism, which held that there's just something about the Germans. Ultimately, like it's played, like it's dressed up in different ways, but ultimately it's just the idea that there's because Sonderweg literally means like a special journey or special path or special way which indicate like the idea that there's just something about the germans where they were always going to do something like this i mean i think eisner uh, not eisner i think uh krakauer is probably closer to that because eisner she does acknowledge that yes nazism did happen after that um but uh she's she's primarily concerned with art in and of itself as an entity 
and she doesn't divorce it from what happened afterwards but she does kind of she does see it as something uh that exists in and of itself and isn't necessarily part of some wider agenda or progression but the other things that she points out is uh the influence of one of the other major forces in the early German Romantic period is the literature of Sturm und Drang, uh, Sturm und Drang, which uh, re- translates roughly as storm and stress, which deals with ideas of intense, conflicting emotions. Um, and that defined a lot of the early works of uh, writers like Goethe and Schiller. And just in, this, in this era as well, but there was also, there was... Um... Uh, as because as a result again as a result of the defeat of the war um, and because just the heavy militarization of German society that existed before the time there was a popularity in um, novelizations of the war and war journals in particular most most prominently it was um, uh, was Storm of Steel by Ernst Jünger who uh, Jünger would go on to like become a like a very very interesting conservative intellectual and like of the period and later he lived to over a hundred he was like he was actually quite a fascinating guy he became um, one of the most respected novelists in twentieth uh, century Europe but there was um, there was still this fascinate there was still this fascination with Germ- with uh, German militarism and with warfare in general and Jünger. Uh, in particular, was respons- was partially responsible for popularizing the idea of a there being a metaphysical dimension to conflict. Mm. That so there's something actually war just is necessary in itself. Mm. Uh, and actually, and there's something that is perhaps worth mentioning. One thing that we're not suggesting, and I don't believe Krakauer was suggesting either, is that cinema is responsible for the rise of Nazism. Mm. It's more that um, it's more that we can see the evolution of the ideas that can lead to a fascistic mentality as German cinema progresses. And this does help reinforce these ideas. But certainly, like, you'd have to be... I don't think anyone's ever claimed that it was, you know, these films made people Nazis. Mm. But one of the other things that is distinctive in terms of cinema and its content is the Gothic legacy. Um, This is another kind of offshoot of the Romantic period, uh, which uh, presented a form of kind of idealized uh versions of medievalism which was a which was a popular which was a popular romantic trait because it was uh it was making a, a break with the past weirdly um uh, favoring that over an idealized version of classical society that was very much um that was very much an aspect of the uh of the renaissance era this is something that you see especially with um the folkish nationalists mm. which because uh, the folkish nationalism wasn't a 20th century didn't originate in the 20th century began in the late 19th century in Austria mm. uh, where there was this notion of that because the uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was um, over dom- like the two dominant you have these two dominant nations in Austria-Hungary, obviously the Austrians and the Hungarians, and among the German speakers in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, when a unified German, specifically German Empire formed after the Franco-Prussian War, they became more, there was this movement to become more interested in the idea of Germanness mm. as like a binding spirituality almost. Yeah. Uh, and uh, often this, and with people due to people uh, like, um, like, people like occultists like Guido von Liszt, this involved hard back to a totally fictional a completely myth a completely mythological mythological prelapsarian german gnostic occult society they believed existed in prehistory before the romans arrived mm. but yeah and that, that kind of that kind of feeds in like a lot of um the 19th century late 18th century was a very very uh, distinctive time um for um 
for kind of formulating a German ide- a particular German identity and a particular German culture, and a lot of it seemed to be concerned with breaking from earlier things. Because uh, as well as um, there was things like the the fact that um, Germany didn't didn't really have a classical legacy in the way that ancient Greece or you know the Greeks or Romans uh, did. So they they um, tried to do a version of what. British people have been doing in the well I think a lot of people have done which is to try and like adopt one like the the British claiming that they were from Troy uh they they became very very interested in um Tacitus's history of the Germans um where he talks about how that how they are kind of this kind of noble tribal system and that that they saw as suddenly giving them something that they could equate with uh, the classical legacy of Greece and Rome. Yeah, but again, this is sort of like, this is the kind of stuff that Guy de Fondis drew from. Like, he um, completely just willfully misinterpreted uh, Tacitus's history of the Germans and saw that, like, he assumed the different tribes Tacitus was talking about were actually different castes of mm-hmm. a unified German society, where there being the caste of the, of the Gnostic priest kings and then the warriors and the workers, and it's... It's not. I mean, it, it, well, should, it should go without saying. This was, is nonsense. That's the uh, thing. They didn't have access to the original text, and then I think there was a weird thing where they tried to like desperately get hold of the papyri or whatever <laughs> of um of this text, and then when they read it, it was actually quite unflattering about um, what ge- <laughs> how uh, Romans saw Germans in this era. It's like no, they didn't see them as this um, noble, barbarous race that they couldn't compete with in the forests or something. It was. It was. Yeah. It was. It was like these people are use not only savage but also lazy and useless. Uh, uh, oh, can I make a recommendation to the listener? Go for it. Uh, if you uh, a very very good novel, I would recommend to everyone. If you have, you know, the I don't. Okay, so it's a thousand page long novel written as the memoirs of a gay SS officer called um, The Kindly Ones by Jonathan Little. It's very good. It's a very very good very horrible book uh, which go which like a lot of this kind of comes up in it because it is is an unrepentant nazi explaining why he did all the things he did mm. and what makes it interesting is he's not attempting to he doesn't at any point apologize for what he's done this novel this memoir is him justifying it and there's like long conversations where he is like he just delivers national socialist nazi fascist ideology in like in a very intellectual way explains why he believed believed those things then and why he continues to believe them now after the war mm. uh, it's uh, yeah but if you want to f- if you want to find out more about this horrible mentality read that very upsetting book mm. um also just kind of one other um thing that was interesting about um the romantic era in germany there's a actually Another good uh, in our time uh, episode about this, um, which is the the German Romanticism episode. I'll link to, link out to it when I do one of the ref threads. And we did one uh, about the Frankfurt School as well. If you oh, want yeah. to learn a bit more about that, we'll link out to both of these. But uh, one of the things was that, as well as um, as well as wanting to give themselves their own kind of legacy or identity in a new formed literary context, they also uh, wanted to separate themselves from the uh, otherwise all-embracing cultural hegemony of the French, which had been a very major force in the years leading up to that, because France... France is good at doing culture, (laughs) Um, it turns out. Um, But one of the other distinctive things for the purposes of our um, subject matter, which I realise that I've strayed from rather badly here, is um, as well as as well as uh, being fantastical, uh, a lot of the things produced from Germany in this era, we're talking about 18th, 19th century, is the macabre, uh, the distinctly macabre uh, trends in literature, which produced some weird, weird things long before, um, long before we had really 
uh, had our, you know, pr- before kind of Edmund Burke and the notion of the sublime, and then later, um, later the uncanny and ho- and uh, the fixation with the gothic. You know, they they spearheaded a lot of the the weird, strange things um, that are defined by by stuff like uh, grim tales. Those are not only weird and fantastical, but also dark in a way that's upsetting and um, upsetting and um, and strikes you know creates a lot of questions but as well as well as that you know the the leading light in this respect is one figure known as ETA Hoffman who we've mentioned briefly on this podcast in relation to Freud uh, he wrote uh, dark gothic uncanny tales of things that are kind of unexplainable um, and it was most notably his his famous story the Sandman which was the subject of Sigmund Freud's um, thesis on the uncanny it was in and of itself, like, almost like a kind of working articulation of the principles of the uncanny long before they'd even been formulated. I think we've almost certainly mentioned this before, but of course the German word which we translate as uncanny is unheimlich, mm. which literally literally means uh, unhomely. Mm. Uh, which I think we're just going to have to do an episode about in and of itself. Um, but um, going into... Um, but thinking about how this impacted on German cinema of the 1920s, um, the... I think it's worth just noting kind of what what exactly was expressionism or what is expressionism. And in basic terms, it refers to a trend in well, it's kind of one of one of the modernist groups of groups uh, currents in art, and refers to art that places emphasis on depicting a theme or subject through um, through direct conscious experience, um, borrowing from borrowing from the Cubist school in some in some respects. The um, which you know, linked to the dismissal of Renaissance classical notions of proportion. This was um, this was uh, getting into kind of the idea how minds or memories formed images. Images weren't just images; don't just refer to static items. They refer to the fluid, conscious interpretation of these things that you're seeing in front of you. And um, and expressionism was an attempt at depicting this in an artistic sense or or creating some sort of facsimile or articulation of how that might function. Um, the archetypal uh, expressionist film, um, notably, is Robert Viner's... Uh, Robert Viner? His 1919 film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which sees the story of murder and dubious kind of psychic slash psychiatric practices taking place within an exaggerated world of long shadows, hysterically angled buildings, uncomfortably close streets and absurdly disproportionate spaces and unnatural landscapes, which creates this kind of this elaborate spectacle of, of a world turned mad in which dream and waking have become merged. But it wasn't just something limited to um, visual depictions. We got... I think the what's identified as the classic example of expressionism in literature is a book by, um, the, in fact, the sole debut debut and only novel of Reina Maria Rilke, who was otherwise a poet, um, called The Notebooks of uh, Malte Laurens Brig, which came out in 1910. It's, uh, it's a meditation on ideas of childhood, death, and mental illness, but it's done in a stream-of-consciousness type narrative where he's exploring just the things coming up in front of him and, and how he interprets them in a in an uncomfortably intimate way. 
So that was expressionism. Um, but even though even though I put a lot of stress on Eisner in this respect, um, perhaps one of the best quotes that describes the effect of this emergence of a, kind of a radical, defiant German cinematic identity comes not from Eisner, but from Siegfried Krakauer, uh, where he's talking about when Caligari came out in America and the weird kind of... And this is the shock and the surprise that uh, resulted from that. He talks about how in exposing the German soul the post-war film seemed to make even more of a riddle of it. Which is why tonight we are talking about Nosferatu. So, usually this is the point where we would do a synopsis of the film. But the thing is... Nosferatu, or to give it its full title, Nosferatu eine Symphonie des Grauens, or Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, is Dracula. It is a completely unofficial, unauthorised adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which they tried to get away with just by changing a few of the names. So, Vampire becomes Nosferatu, Dracula becomes Orlok, Harker becomes Hutter, and uh, Van Helsing becomes Bulva. And they also merged um, Nina, uh, Mina, Mina Harker and Lucy Westenra together in the same character, who's now called Nina, I think. It changes, like, I, I first saw it on a, um, I think it was the Eureka release of the VHS, and they did actually just, they changed back some of the names, because I think it was an American VHS, so they, they... They had different copyright laws, so they could just actually call him Dracula in that one. Um, but um, I think it was... They just changed it to Nina because it sounded more German, which is the... God knows how they thought they would get away with that, basically. Yeah, they uh, And um, the film... Well, obviously, the stuff with uh, Dracula or Orlok's castle takes place in Transylvania still, but mm. um, instead of Whitby, it's, um, it's a fictional Vizborg. town. I thought it was... Was it Vitmar? Oh no, Vismar is an actual place where some bits of the film were shot, which is weird because it, um, its name, like, as both Whitby and Vismar are real places, and their names translate to roughly the same thing. So I think that was just a bit of weird serendipity. Oh, jolly good. But anyway, they set the stuff that would be set in Whitby is set in a made up town in Germany instead. Mm. Um, if you're not. That, if you want to remind yourself about the story of Dracula or Nosferatu, just read the wiki synopsis. Like, like I said, normally we would tell we would tell you it, but it is just Dracula, and we kind of people do know the story. We yeah. feel we feel confident that people will know the story. Um, um, but what the, they might not know is the extremely fraught history that it had. <laughs> yes, so it was uh, came out in 1922. It was directed by F. W. Murnau. It was a production of Prana Film uh, by Alban Grau. And it was nearly destroyed. It was nearly yeah. Basically, uh, I think there was there was a there was a weird history with that because there was a dispute over the rights to the film. Basically. Um, well, that, that actually goes back to the, the, the history of the, the novel itself, because it the novel had only really existed for... I'm borrowing this, I'm actually, I got this from um, the Lovecraft Literary Podcast, but they talk about how um, Bram Stoker only read, only wrote uh, the book Dracula because um, he was writing a play of, based on the same story um, that he didn't want someone to ca- someone else to cash in on the novel rights for. So he wrote the novel so that that could come out at the same time and he beat them to the chase. Um, but then it you know, became a literary classic in its own right because it is very, very good, or at least for the first couple of chapters before it gets a bit... <laughs> I, uh, I tried to read it. 
I really tried to read Dracula. I got a quarter of the way into it, which I was very proud of myself about because it's a big boy book. Mm. And uh, and that's the thing. It's very frustrating And because the first, like, all the stuff in Dracula, where he's in Castle Dracula, is really, really good and very, very tense. But then the action moves to Whitby and you have just this like horrible Victorian misogyny going on with the um like you have one of Lucy um uh, was that Lucy was L- Lucy West Enra Lucy West Enra I think it's West Enra which is a it's stuck in my memory because it's one of those weird sort of is that actually a name yeah it's one of her letters it's one of her letters to Mina Harker well not Harker well, not Harker yet where she says something horrible she says a couple of horrible things she says me a girl almost of 20 years and still not a single man has proposed to me mm. followed by a next letter where three men propose to her in the space of one day leading her to comment because she has to turn them down because she's already said yes to the to her one true love and they all the take the hot American one the hot American and they all take no it's not the hot American oh she no. turns down the hot American she turns down oh my goodness she turns the hot american and the suave psychiatrist fact, for, is it the lord it is the lord oh, yeah and but one. there's just the horrible line where because they all take the the two she turns down take it very 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 well yeah and she says oh some manners. oh sometimes mina i think us ladies don't deserve the nobility of men which it appeared I, I i theorized that bram stoker at the time had not met a woman Mm. and uh, was kind of working on speculative guest work here more than anything else. Mm. So it's a frustrating novel because it has these moments of brilliance. And, like There's some very genuinely very like creepy bits in it, but it's just, it is quite long. Mm. And life is short. And I have other things that I want to read which are less demanding. Um, so I think it's like, it might have been out of sheer frustration um, that when Francis Ford Coppola would make his own adaptation of this, of this work, that he would just be like, right, um... Lucy and Mina kiss. <laughs> let's just let's just cut to the chase. Well, yeah, that, let's have a let's do another episode on that one because I, I fucking love that one. It's a one. It is actually a really really gorgeous film, and uh, we could do Keanu Reeves just attempting oh. to affect a British accent. And um, but anyway, that's not the film we're talking about. No, we're, we're, talking we're talking about, about the cinematic th- classic Nosferatu. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier it was nearly eradicated. Uh, this was from a, like another kind of success. One of the succession of um, of copyright infringement issues where Mina Harker. Well, not Mina Harker. <laughs> um, she wasn't real, Lucy. Florence Stoker. Is that is Florence Stoker? She sounds like she was a monster character. Anyway, Mrs. Stoker. Mrs. Stoker, the widow Stoker, um, who basically was just down on her luck, trying to cash in on royalties, uh, wasn't going so well. Um, learned of this unauthorized adaptation and wanted to first get some of that money, but when she realised she couldn't, decided, "Fuck it, I'm going to have them all destroyed." And she was very, very successful in that all but one all but one and that was in america and she couldn't get to them then because of different copyright laws so it really is amazing just how close this come this has come to being a lost film Mm. it is as close as it could be without actually being a lost film one every single whenever if you ever watch this film you are watching like transfers from the one surviving copy which just ended up in the safe in america i think also like uh, in some of the later dvd releases there are some fragments that are added into it as a kind of composite uh variorum edition if you will mm. um but as well as as well as this kind of this fraught history post-release um the it's also notable that um the production of it was a very strange one um which has in which has 
generated a, a wellspring of rumor and mystery in and of itself, uh, relate, with, uh, relate, uh, resulting, in fact, in um, a fantastic dramatization of this speculative history of the making of Nosferatu by E. Elias Merig. Uh, marriage, 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 uh, in, two, in the year two thousand, with Shadow of the Vampire, um, where but- Willem, where Willem Dafoe plays plays the guy playing Nosferatu, uh, Count Orlok, um, John Malkovich is S. W. Murnau, Udo Kier is Albin Grau, and Eddie Izzard plays the guy that plays <laughs> um, <laughs> plays Hutter. It's um, please watch Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah. I re- it is such a just such a good film. But it's e- yeah, yeah. Um, but even a- even though even if it's like even if it turns out like uh, Max Shrek wasn't in fact a vampire, there was a lot of weird stuff happening, um, largely to do with um, with uh, F. W. Murnau's un- unusual filmmaking practices, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but there was there's things like the fact that um, he shot a lot of it on location. Uh, he used a almost kind of proto-method acting uh, direction, which was, a, which was a, a characteristic of his in other films. But um, crucially, it wasn't just made for entertainment. There was another agenda going on. And this came from a figure known as Albin Grau. Albin Grau. So who played... That was Udo Kier? That was Udo Kier in Shadow of the Vampire. Ah. Who was uh, Albin Grau? Albin Grau. Albin Grau was an occultist and an artist. Mm. Uh, he. Oh, actually, I'll just say before we begin. I got the source. I'm. I'm drawing this from a couple of texts more than anything else. Uh, one is Alistair Crowley, "The Beast in Berlin: Art, Sex, and Magic in the Weimar Republic" by Tobias Churton, and an article in the Fourteen Times from a few years ago by Brian J. Robb called "The Vampire and the Occultist." We'll put out, um, as ever, we'll put out links in the mega thread that comes after this episode if you want to check it out yourself. Mm-hmm. And a tiniest little—I'm not even certain any of the stuff I've read is going to end up in what I'm going to say. But if you want to learn a tiniest little bit more about this, um, check out the book I've mentioned once before, "Lords: The Left Hand Path" by. Stephen E. Flowers, PhD, but don't trust anything he says implicitly. One thing that I do want to mention right now is that these two sources I'm drawing from more than anything else, they don't actually quite align with one another. There are some contradictions between them. And I imagine this is due to the fact that they are, it's, it's an attempt to reconstruct uh, a very, very specific set of things going on with a very specific set of individuals. Um who are talking about the occult and and these are just it becomes difficult to have any kind of certainty with it and the i'm not sure how much i actually trust either of these sources and the churton book is actually in a certain sense kind of terrible um there's like just give you an example of the kind of the kind of prose that we have here there's one bit where he says flush with optimism Crowley arranged the marriage, his own, with the lady he called his High Priestess of Voodoo, Maria Teresa Ferrari de Miramar, in order to save from stateless isolation in Belgium this highly sexed, buxom daughter of a Nicaraguan landowner, which was a necessary set of words for him to use in this book which purports to be an academic text about Alistair Crowley and the Weimar Republic. I've heard worse. So, everything, take a pinch of salt here, but I've tried to construct as accurate a picture as I can. Anyway, back to Albin Grau. So, Grau, he was an, occult, he was an occultist and he was an artist. Uh, he served on the Russian front in World War I, which was 
really brutal. I mean, sort of like, I mean, like, um, I'm certain you've all done, your, remember your GCSE history. Uh, Germany did not do well with World War One. That's kind of so the whole thing. surprisingly well on the Russian front. Yeah, but the Russian front was also kind of horrific for other reasons, because the Russians just kept on coming and they were very under... Because un, Germany was a modern industrial military power and the Russians were not. So they just kept on sending men to die. And the, like the Russian front was... The Russian front wasn't as horrific for the Germans in World War One as it was in World War Two, where it's what cost them the war, arguably. But it's still like... This is like... It is nightmare arguably, territory. Arguably, definitely. Well, de- yeah, anyway. But yeah. Uh, um, but anyway. Uh, Grau um, did what we would now call storyboards for a lot of the uh, early German feature films, reportedly including the, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari itself. And it's significant to draw attention to the name of his production company, Prana Films. Because uh, Prana refer, is the, uh, refers to the esoteric life energy concept in Eastern religions, especially in uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. And the idea of a life energy of a vital force was very, very popular in Western occult circles at the time, uh, especially theosophical circles. And it took on various different uh, guises, like there was one there was one German occultist whose name escapes me, who coined the term the Odal Force to describe um, the vital energy. Uh, Prana was one that was popularised by the Theosophical Society. And uh, Wilhelm Reich, who of course we talked about a lot in our Shivers episode, believed Orgone was the Odal Force, it was Prana, it was real energy, it was the Holy Spirit, it was the vital spark, it was the vital force. And it's really worth emphasising, as I've hinted at already, that uh, occultism and especially theosophy were very much in vogue in Germany at the time. Mm-hmm. And thanks to, again, who I've already mentioned, Guido von Liszt and, and, uh, and another guy who was even worse than Liszt when it came to his racism, a guy called Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, kind of popularised a racial folkish occultism. And let's not also forget the inf- influence of Madame Elena Vlavatsky. Well, indeed, that's what theosophy is, Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should we should give her a shout out, you know. Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Yeah. Uh, noted charlatan and fraud, Madame Blavatsky, who, just like we know for a fact, but she pop that she just not popularized. Um, she, um, what's the word when you steal someone's ideas? Uh, plagiarized. Plagiarized. Uh, there you go. She plagiarized large quantities of her books from other occult writers of the time. Um. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The important thing is occultism and theosophy and weird race, racial versions of occultism and theosophy. That's the thing at the time. That's the popular thing at the time. And it's also unsurprising that this um, this fed a lot into the uh, occult um, aspect of Nazism in a big way. Uh, they were drawing a lot of contemporary uh, currents in society. Uh, Siegfried Krakauer talks about this, as does... Um, as does uh, Mark Gatiss in Horror Europa to a large extent. Um, there's some very good resources on this. Um, there's a three, I think it's a three-part episode in Last Podcast on the Left where they talk about the occult roots of Nazism. Oh, I actually wouldn't recommend that um, no? because th- um, they are really wrong in that. Oh right. Like so, like not um, the. Uh, I would actually say the text to refer to if you want to learn more about it is the Occult Roots of Nazism by Nicholas Goodrick Clark. Okay, one thing I would recommend checking out though is. Uh, I mean, check. I mean, always listen to last podcast. Is there an episode of Weird Signal where we've not said go listen to last podcast on the left? I'm not sure. We love them. One thing, <laughs> one thing to check out though is uh, if you if go, like search on YouTube Glenn Danzig book collection because this is one of the things he has in his esoteric library, <laughs> which also includes a book of werewolf stories, which he who refers to as being 
all documented, all true. <laughs> I'm gonna definitely link to that. Ah, uh, so yeah, the the thing to realise with all with the stuff about occultism and Nazism, it's a lot of it is. Is, is false. It's false history that was made up many, many years after the fact. But but there is some truth to it. And there are prominent Nazis, like like especially Rudolf Hess and Heinrich Himmler, who were occultists who did believe in all of this. Hitler himself, it's very much up to debate. I've been told by a friend of mine who knows a lot more about this than I do, that uh, hi Rowan, uh, <laughs> that um, this has been like when it comes to Hitler himself like everything we know about his own belief system indicates that he was contemptuous of occultism he didn't believe uh, he he thought it was as useful as Christianity potentially was but that was it uh, for um, unifying the Germans under his co- behind his cause but but even 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 if there is a dubious kind of historicity to the literal beliefs in the occult fueling these things it's important to think about how they fit into the more general aesthetic dimension of um, Nazism and how Nazism uh, formed uh, go 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 read authors from the Frankfurt School on that <laughs> on that note the idea of the aestheticization of politics so going back to uh, Alban Grau um, it isn't clear how he became involved with the occult or at least I've not been able to figure it out from the sources I've read about him um, um, I, I mean I I think a lot of well he's kind of reading up on him myself I think he follows a trend that a lot of people who got into the occult um, did um, not not um, uh, not least of which was Austin Osman Spare, which is the fact that he was primarily an artist. He was interested in art and he was interested in these emerging trends in um, the theoretical conception of fine art. And I think in a lot of cases that did lead to, uh, through, its, through its nature, as you know, uh, these ideas of codification and subconsciousness um, did lead did occasionally lead people to an occulted uh, interpretation of things and a and a sense that um, art and a, art itself was a sort of occult practice. Yes, uh, Spare is very much the archetypal example of that. That's Austin Osman Spare, and um, his art is just was uh, just wonderful, wonderful art. Heavy, um, heavy use of uh, line. He knew, he wasn't a fan of shading, so it's just he produced these wonderfully strange line drawings. Some of which he would draw with a sit without ever taking the pencil off of the paper. It's kind of amazing as well. Like they art historians like struggle to define him because a lot of people said like, oh yeah, he's a an outsider artist. He's an outsider artist. It's like oh, he's a bit like uh, they they. They tried to make him like, oh, he's a he's a sort of successor to um, the German school of people like uh, Albrecht Dürer and things. Or who's the other one who did uh, Hans Holbein and things? But um, but then people tried to lump him in with the surrealist movement. And even though there were a lot of crossover with the occult in that, he was he was very much his own thing. He really, had... though, weren't the surrealists? They were closer to Freudianism than occultism, weren't they? Um, well, that's the thing. We think about people like uh, Leonora Carrington involving a lot of. Uh, a... Well, she kind of used occult themes. I guess she was borrowing more from Jung than Freud, but she used occult themes in her art to explore uh, ideas in what would ultimately be quite perhaps a more Freudian dimension. Um, but um, but yeah, they're, they're running cross purposes because uh, one deals with uh, rationality and, the, and an attempt to codify and uh, enlighten and the other deals with obscuring and it, it, um, is, uh, it is true but this is definitely like a this is a uh, an observable tendency in the artistic in the artistic world to lean towards occultist uh, ideas uh Hilma for Alf, better or worse for better or worse Hilma af klimt for instance Hilma af klimt not to be uh, confused with Clip klimt 
Clint, you know, the one that did all the letters. The gold, the gold guy. Hilma, yeah. Anyway, Hilma Afklint, who was a uh, Swiss uh, Swedish woman, um, she did these beautiful abstract, like very, oh, very highly that. abstract. Um, Lucy helpfully sort of like just looked at the picture I had on my screen saying, look at that, forgetting that this is an audio <laughs> medium. But we'll link this out as well. She did these, um, she would try to... Um, convey again theosophical occult uh, ideas with abstract art and created these very very beautiful non-figurative art forms mm. to try and express inexpressible ideas yeah because I mean both these things have their roots in the symbolist painters of the 19th century and if you again. fancy a giggle look up Alistair Crowley's art because he was not very good he's 100% outsider 100% artist <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is actually quite he oh my god he's so he was so bad he was quite dreadful he was a dreadful writer he was a dreadful artist he just accidentally happened to be a genius at just, the other stuff he did he just like he just shitted everyone up and, um, <laughs> it's, and they didn't know what to make of him it's very so impor- he became everything it's very important that he happened and he is clearly a genius mm. but oh my god like I tried to I had to, mirroring exactly my feelings about Glenn Danzig but go on I tried to read um, Moonchild and honestly I just put the book away at the first sentence which begins London capital of the British Empire and I just closed the book there because I thought no Alistair we know where where and what London is why would you begin a book like this what's mm. wrong with you what We're, is this got a shout out as well like I know we're getting way off topic and this is already about 45 minutes in but uh uh who's the American guy uh he, he's like abstract expressionist he did uh Pollock? He's the one who I keep mistaking Malevich with. Kandinsky? Kandinsky. Kandinsky. Kandinsky wrote about these things in what was kind of touching at an almost scientific interpretation of these things, the idea of the the psychology of colours and stuff. Um, There's this kind of crossover, but different to different purposes. But I think that's... (laughs) We're way off topic. We're way off topic. This has become basically a podcast about art history, which I kind of... We always want it. We always want art history and the occult. Uh, it is not 12 o'clock in the day, let listener, and Lucy and I are both on our second glass of wine. Uh, back to it. Anyway. What was Alvin Grau doing? What was his intention with making this? Okay, so it's important to stress... Okay, when it comes to his actual involvement with occultism, like I said, I'm not actually 100% clear how he got into it. It seems likely that it was just a general artistic movement that led him towards occultist ideas. But there are, we do know some details. We do know some details about this. He was an associate with a guy called uh, Heinrich Trenke, who was, a bof- who was a bookseller and a leading occultist in Germany uh, at the time. And... He was Grau was a member of the occult order that Trenka set up, which was called Pansophical Lodge, and Pans uh, a Pansophy, which is the name of like the philosophy of this um, of this occult order. According to Brian J. Robb, who's the guy who wrote the article in the Fourteen Times, uh, he he says, "quote It was a Frankenstein-like belief system that." cherry-picked the best bits from theosophy, Rosicrucianism, and Freemasonry, among many others. So. Um, and this was just this was just the way that things went then. And to be honest, is how a lot of occult orders approach things now. It is very much a dilettante thing. Uh, and indeed, the impression that I got of uh, Pansofi of a Pansophical Lodge was they were a bunch of dilettantes. They were they. It was more about let's put on the the funny hats and the cloaks and let's gather together and talk about esotericism and occultism and Rosicrucianism and all that and that will be the thing we do mm. uh, because it becomes at that point because it kind of it can become a lark it's more of a social gathering mm. than anything I mean else. until we institute full communism and have a kind of state sanctioned project of 
occult uh, enlightenment. We're never really going to get anything other than these these aristocratic bastards who have no stake in anything. Mm. Trenka, however, was also a member of Ordo Templi Orientis. Uh, OTO was not founded by Alistair Crowley, it should be uh, emphasised. It exi- re-founded. <laughs> it, no, actually, genuinely, yes, because um, when, when Alistair, because Alistair Crowley, um, uh, okay, so when it comes to cr- me and Crowley, I will either say everything or very, very little, so I'm going to em- try and go for very little. Alistair, Alistair Crowley, the famed British occultist, believed that he received a kind of a special occult revelation in 1904, which he called the Law of Thelema, which was codified in a revealed text called the Book of the Law, which he believed was like the next step in human spiritual evolution. And Crowley wanted to try and get the pre-existing occult societies of the time to accept the law of Thelema and implicitly his own prophethood uh, as the first steps towards founding the new era of a human progress. And OTO was the first of the old Aeon magical societies, to use the terminology, which accepted the law of uh, of Thelema. And I won't go into the details about how it actually happened, because again, the sources don't actually quite harmonise with one another. There's lots of speculation. Um, but... OTO accepts the law of, of accepted the law of uh, Thelema and Trenka accepts it personally as well and in some sense growled but uh I'm not certain in quite what the exact sense he did accept the law of Thelema but this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because Crowley doesn't actually get on the occult scene in Germany until after Nosferatu is made, but this is I'm kind of like we're talking about this to kind of give you an impression of Alban Grau's character, because what Grau was trying to do with Prana films and what he was trying to do with Nosferatu in particular was what okay the idea behind Prana films was that it was going to be his vehicle for transmitting occult ideas to the general public. And Nosferatu, which was the only film Prana films would ever make because of uh, bankruptcy and the lawsuit and all that. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is the only this is the only film he made, and so Nosferatu is the only living example we have of arguably because there's some other film he made he did make other films but this is like the one we can definitely say this was him attempting to transmit occult ideas. But when it comes to actually trying to figure out what was the actual content of Grau's occult philosophy. Like, what are the ideas he's attempted to transmit? This actually becomes very, very difficult to define because, like, because at this point in his esoteric career, like, which, like I said, is before Alistair Crowley turns up on the scene, before um, the law of Thelema and all of that gets, like, becomes part of the occult consciousness in Germany, all we have is that Grau was a member of Pansophical Lodge, and all we have is that Pansophical Lodge taught him a hodgepodge of Rosicrucian, Theosophical, and Masonic ideas. Mm. My own personal hypothesis is that Grau probably at this point did not, strictly speaking, possess a coherent uh, occult philosophy or occult belief system. I imagine that it's more that he believed in a web of specific ideas and specific occult concepts and he and specific practices, which drew from a lot of sources, uh, which would would definitely have included um, hermeticism and would have included just from the name prana. We can assume it included. Um, the westernization of eastern uh, esoteric ideas like obviously like prana for instance mm. he probably didn't like so i don't think he would actually if you'd ask him to define it on the piece of paper i don't think he would have produced like a coherent creed it's more that 
And indeed, going back to him as an artist, it's perhaps almost more that he had a sensibility that he was attempting to transmit, a, or an, an aesthetic disposition that he was trying to transmit. I mean, that's something that has been a current in occult thought since the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, the, I mean, one book I would particularly point to is um, Francis... Amelia Yates's uh, history of I can't remember the exact title, but I will link out to it. Oh, but she did a very good book. On, the, she did lots of very good books. Oh, like, I think and there's the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, the Rosicrucian Enlightenment and is the, one the I'm uh, of. occult philosophy in, Elizabeth, in the Elizabethan age. I yeah, think the two, but, uh, and she, yeah, I think those are her two main ones. And she has a lot of very interesting ideas, and some, some slightly dubious. This is some um, like. This kind of she she doesn't she she like many authors since her falls into the trap of trying to um, trying to convey this sense that there was some great kind of secret practical agenda that uh, Dr. John Dee was attempting in his capacity as kind of spy and double agent to spread some sort of occult enlightenment across Europe. But one of the things, but that aside, one of the things she picks up is this central paradox that runs through a lot of the occult thought of of the 17th century which is the sense that there were you know there were specific belief systems and there were more generalized belief systems and ideas but um but one of the things that comes out bit of history of the rosicrucians it's unclear how much they existed as a coherent organization because the rosicrucianism was a um as a belief system because it still exists today they're still wrote their modern rosicrucian orders which you can become a member for for quite a reasonable price if you fancy well i mean these are these are some charlatans who are pretending to be the real rosicrucians who may or may not have ever existed yeah because the uh, rosicrucianism was uh i think when actually the content of their Ideas was a mixture of um, as it was an as it was a form of esoteric Christianity with an emphasis on alchemical ideas, uh, and the it came about with these pamphlets which were published, which mm. were supposedly um, the Rosicrucian manifestos. The Rosicrucian manifestos, which were either about or were support reportedly written by a guy called Christian Rosencruz Ro- or Rose Cross, mm. hence Rosicrucian, um, which I think the idea is that Christian Rosencruz goes to the far east he meets the sufis and he meets the islamic mystics and he rediscovers that there was a the mystical side of christianity and he's trying to restore that mm. and so the rosicrucian ideas and hermetic ideas um do become very tied up with the they do become tied up with the enlightenment project in some sense like and you do get like if you actually for example scrutinize the agenda of the actual historical Bavarian Illuminati, the actual historical secret society, which, which was founded by Adam Weishaupt in uh, Ingolstadt. Not the ones that live under the pizza place. No, not them. Uh, then the actual, I like their their ideas, the things they want to bring about is secular government, republicanism. But the thing is, it does also have an occult dimension to it. In a certain sense, the occult idea they're trying to, trying to um, get out there is the notion of rationalism, naturalism, and the idea that government shouldn't be done by a king in the church. Mm. But that's one of the fundamental contradictions of what they actually did, because while they, you know, they put out these pamphlets, but there's this duality that runs through them that is, yes, perhaps there's a secret code running through it, but at the same time, there is a very, uh, very definite sense of trying to infer a kind of mysticism to it by making it obscure and hinting at these ideas and hinting that there might be a lot more than is fundamentally comprehensible on any level but more than more than trying to actually forward an agenda it's it's kind of forwarding their own it's kind of like it's a variation on the idea of self-fashioning of the renaissance which is um 
they were trying to just create this sense that there is something very, very profound going on. We are the beholders of this secret knowledge and the power resided in its mystery and its fundamental incomprehensibility without perhaps some sort of insider information. And there was something very kind of hackery, something very, uh, very kind of, um, I'm a mod, you know, wizardy about um, trying to create this impression. And that is just such a trend through um, through a lot of magic that there are all these ideas. Uh, what's that? What's that? I think it's, oh shit, it's a Tom Lehrer or something. It's like uh, a great sound and noise saying much and connoting nothing. Um, and it's just like, the, it uses all these symbols. It uses this potent sense of mystery to create a sense that something very powerful was going on. And, and that should, is perhaps what Albin Grau was doing. And it should also be said that sometimes that is a deliberate strategy. I know, it's absolutely a deliberate yeah, strategy. Uh, but I mean, it's not that sort that they don't actually have anything to say, but they've deliberately, create, they deliberately yeah. created a sense of mystery because understanding the power that mystery in itself possesses. And also is really fun. It is fun. Um, going back to Nosferatu, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to the actual occult yeah. content of the <laughs> film... not actually that much. <laughs> there really what? isn't. However... With, an ex- with one exception, which is the contract that Count Orlok signs. Because in the book, it's just a contract. It's just a, ha- it's just a legal agreement which he signs when he's buying this house. Mm. But the contract that you actually get to see in the film, and they make a point of showing you it, is covered in alchemical and astrological and Enochian symbols. Mm. Uh, Enochian symbol. So, okay, so Enochian is the language of the angels, which uh, Dr. John Dee believed to have, dis- he, to have discovered through the medium he employed, a guy called Edward Kelly. And because uh, Dee, Dee came up with the idea of using the crystal ball as a scrying mechanism. Uh, but he discovered when he was doing his occult researches, because again, there is like at the time in Elizabethan in the Elizabethan era, what we now call the occult is just science. It's still mm. it's just another part of it because there's the idea that there's the hidden world and we're just discovering all these different things about it. So he's a so he kind of uses the scientific method in his attempts to contact angelic mm. beings, and he discovers in this what he's trying to do is that he doesn't possess any mediumship of himself. Mm. So he hires a medium who's a guy called Edward Kelly, who was a convicted fraud mm. at this like, like, <laughs> like I'm not because actually because well, like cause mm. this this is the thing. This is what's so strange about Edward Kelly because he was he was um he being con- I think his conviction was for money uh, was for forging money, and in fact he had his ears cut off because mm. that's just how how you punish people in pre-modernity uh, and but he claimed to be a medium he claimed he could speak to the angels and D hires and, him to be his medium and he managed to get funding from the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II for this because this is what's so interesting is because the kind of stuff that he is like transmitting to D like it includes an entire language which is a lot for you know a convicted money forger with no ears i think we are also- a man who has no ears uh to act to, to sort of like make uh, so up on the spot the things maybe i mean for one spheres. of the things that it's very strange because like one of the things that the angels told dr john d is <laughs> yeah. you oh by the way the angels say i have to sleep with your wife and you have to sleep with my wife you need to uh, cross match <laughs> but even there's been some interesting stuff points like alan moore for instance cross has talked match. about this uh <laughs> alan moore points out for example that apparently like this 
He's like I call them Alamorph. This is something that there isn't anything to indicate. But are we actually D... talking about Alamorph? Yeah, we are talking okay. about Alamorph. But neither D or Kelly actually wanted, and may actually genuinely have been like an occult exercise in breaking societal taboos by committing adultery. And like, and the Enoch and Enochian, it does function as a language. It does work. It does have its own <clears> syntax and its own grammar, um, which is a lot for someone to invent just off the top of their head, which doesn't an elaborate thing because he really wants to sleep with Lady D. Yeah. Um, so, in short, we don't know. Weird, isn't it? It's mm. kind of cool. Anyway, anyway, those are the characters that are on the contract that Count Orlok signs. It's also, and Growl yeah. wants us to see this. This being said, there have been some attempts to interpret what the actual characters say and what it likes to figure out. Is there actually a, a hidden meaning to the contract? And the overwhelming consensus from occult scholars is that, no, it's just cool-looking symbols. Well, it doesn't actually make sense. I mean, this is going back to my idea of, like, uh, alchemical obfuscation. One thing that's important to remember is that... Um, in 1922, or in 1921 when this was shot, he probably didn't predict that many years from now we'd be watching it on DVD and we'd be able to pause on a crystal clear image of that contract. Well, this is precisely what I was saying. Maybe all he's trying to transmit is a sensibility, is yes. an aesthetic. Moving on. Moving on. I mean, this uh, this leaves us with a bit of a, um, a bit of a paradox on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. Um, basically, um, so... He chose Nosferatu. Nosferatu was going to be the first film of what he saw as this great pranic cinematic vision where he would, he would by obscure or perhaps interpretable means or subconsciously interpretable means demonstrate this occult agenda, whatever it may have been. There were suggestions that he was actually trying to bring about some sort of apocalypse or devil resurrection scenario. It's unclear. That's largely speculation. <laughs> but... Um, but one of the things that we do have to ask is, why did he choose Nosferatu as the first film? And potentially the only film, because he may have, you know, he can't have known how successful he would have been in future film enterprises, because, you know, it was, it was an unreliable market. But um, what is it about Dracula? Why is that the occult thing? Why is this folktale um, that became a novel important? And this is going to, for any fans of Bram Stoker out there, this is going to get your get your bells a-jangling uh, in the fact that... Um, or your Golden Dawn bells a-jangling in the sense that... You, well, Bram Stoker is popularly understood to have been a member of the 19th century occult order, the Golden Dawn. Or the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, to give it its full name. Which was one of these kind of successor things to groups like the Rosicrucians, and inspired by a lot of that, and, and also you know, their own visionary agenda. Yeah, one, one, of, the, one of the um, like orders within the Golden Dawn is called the Order of the Rose Cross. Um, but... Um, but but, but the, the, there's a problem in that, in that there is actually no evidence that he was ever a member of the Golden Dawn. This what this seems to be. It seems to be one of those claims that just was made at some point, and then no one ever really bothered to check up on it, and then everyone just assumes Bram Stoker was a member of the Golden Dawn. He is not that I understand. He there's nothing to indicate that he was ever a member of the Golden Dawn at all. What, one thing that I've seen online suggested as where this came from, this, uh, this legend came from, is when the Golden Dawn fell apart, there were numerous like 
individual lodges which carried on and kind of became successor orders. And the, one of the ideas behind the Golden Dawn was not all was that not all of the members of the order were actually alive. Um, it included disincarnate spirits, for example, of the secret chiefs themselves were the guides of the order, but also dead magicians and dead um, occultists were astrally present. And one of the things I've seen suggested online is the possibility that one of these successor orders claimed that Bram Stoker had joined as an astral entity after his death. That might be where the story... And it becomes just Stoker as a member of the Golden Dawn. Mm. Which uh, is like a really... Like that, that's leaving out all the juicy bits. like <laughs> Juicy and mysterious bits. Because it leaves us with the question of... Why was um, why was Bram Stoker so appealing to the occultists that he didn't even have to be alive to be considered one of them or express any conscious intention to become involved with this at all? Um, and that begs the question of what was it about Bram Stoker's work that struck people as distinctively occultist and led them, like Albin Grau and perhaps others, probably others, to want to infer some sort of occult agenda into this this um, this popular, to some extent, pulpy novel of a vampire, which was a, just a basically a cash in on getting the rights to the novel, so no one else would, so because uh, he was expecting the play to be more successful. With Albin Grau, it seems that the origin of of his desire to do something with vampires comes from the First World War, where he was, um, for a while he was living with a group of Serbian peasants. And one of these peasants told Grau that his father had come back from the dead as a vampire. And that the whole village, I mean, it's very, very archetypal, this. The whole village had to come together with pitchforks and burning torches to hunt him down, stake him in the heart and bury him. And he called this entity a Nosferatu, Mm. um, which... And one of the ideas, and, well, and, and, the, and the etymology of Nosferatu is thought to come from the Greek nos, nosophoros, mm. or plague bearer. Yeah, that's, that's actually a kind of um, very close Latin carryover, because nos meaning, or nox, where we get the term noxious from, means sickness or disease or plague. Uh, and pharaoh is the verb for to carry. So, uh, like ferry, like if you ferry something across, you're carrying it. Go on, Sean. <laughs> you learn things listening to Weird Signal. Just to bring some of what we've been saying about Albin Grau bit to a close, uh, it's interesting to look, to look at so like what happened to him as an occultist after Nosferatu, because we've already said that Alistair Crowley came on the scene in like the uh, the late twenties in Germany, and essentially Crowley was attempting to unite all of the occult orders in uh, Germany under him. He want he wanted to be the guy, uh, and this is part of his you know his kind of like almost like his evangelical zeal about the law of Thelema. Um, and this is where things get confusing because basically the two sources I've read contradict one another here. What is certain is that Grau and Trenka fell out and Pansophical Lodge was dissolved and Grau played an instrumental role in founding a new occult order called Fraternitas Saturni or the Brotherhood of Saturn. But as for the reasons of the fallout, uh, Brian J. Robb claims that the falling out happened due to uh, Grau just being so like personally offended by Alistair Crowley that he became just like just absolutely like disgusted with Trenka for bringing this guy into the scene 
that he just like said, you know, I'm not having anything further to do with you. We're dissolving Pantophical Lodge. I, this is this is over now. And now he's the main one we think of when we think of anything to do with this subject matter. <laughs> However, uh, yeah. according to Tobias, to, to uh, Tobias' highly sexed and buxom daughter, Churton, um, the reason for the fallout... He says that Growl was actually quite impressed with Crowley. He made a big, well, at least a big impression on him, which isn't necessarily a good impression, I suppose. But he says the reason for the fallout was because Trenka became deeply offended by Crowley's presence and attempted to get him legally removed from the country, which Growl considered to be such a, a violation of hospitality that he decided he didn't want to have anything further to do with Trenka, and uh, hence Pansophical Lodge dissolving and Fraternitas Satellite coming along uh, on the scene instead. Um, I'm not going to say anything about the actual belief content of Fraternitas Satellite, except that they practiced a form of Thelema which deliberately left Alastair Crowley personally out of it. Um, on grounds that the law of Thelema says, do what thou wilt, should be the whole of the law, so why the fuck should we do what this guy says? Um, if you want to learn more, again, the Stephen Flowers book has a section on it you can find out about, because Fraternitas Satellite are actually like for occult standards, they they are very secretive. Like mm. they don't like groups like Temple of Set, OTO. They have websites. They pretend to be secretive while hosting a website. While uh, Fraternitas Saturnite, nothing. This is secret knowledge you can get on Amazon. Yeah, like honestly, like they, they don't. I don't think they've made any of their text publicly available. Um, yeah, I have no. I respect uh, that. Yeah, kind of like yeah. Um, they have. A, a roughly Masonic structure. I think they have thirty-three levels of the uh, uh, levels of initiation, which is the same as Scottish Rite Freemasonry. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, planetary energies and um, the planetary spirits, as you'd guess from the name Brotherhood of Saturn. And there's an emphasis on sort of like the dualism between light and darkness, and light coming from darkness. But um, that's kind of neither here nor there, and that isn't really. We don't really need to talk about that for our purposes. But what I am going to talk about is because I think this is inherently going to be kind of intertextual what we're talking about here, and we need to talk about the other vampire. We need to talk about Bella Lugosi's Dracula, mm. not Orlock, but Dracula. And this is where, okay, um, I think we're all aware we've fallen down a rabbit hole this episode a little bit when it comes to the occult stuff because it's just really fun to talk about. And we're going to plunge down even further, even deeper into that mysterious Setian rabbit hole, into the, into the very catonic depths. So, okay, I'm going to talk to you a bit about Kenneth Grant. Kenneth Grant was one of Alistair Crowley's disciples, and he was his secretary. Grant believed that he... I like that. Disciple and secretary. Yes. Um, <laughs> so Crowley... Accountant, Cro admin, PR. Crowley, one of, his, one of his letters, says, Grant was sent to me by the gods, which Grant interpreted as meaning, I am the successor. However, the other people said, interpreted that as Crowley saying... <laughs> Thank God for Ken. <laughs> he just... Uh, he knows his way around the filing cabinet. Say that about him. Because, like, when Crowley died, about five different people claimed to have inherited his mantle. And Cr Grant was one of them. He led his own offshot of OTO called Typhonian OTO. Um, mm. Anyway, so Kenneth Grant is definitely the most imaginative of all of the Crowley successors. And what he did with his own particular brand of Thelema is he combined it with... H.P. Lovecraft, sci-fi, UFO folklore, and more or less whatever he felt like incorporating into what he called um, the Typhonian current, which he believed was the original extraterrestrial occult current that 
has existed throughout human society. If you're confused, then you're right to be, because it's very, very strange and very, very dense. And he wrote this series of nine books called the Typhonian Trilogies. Trilogy, plural, because it's, oh, it's a trilogy of trilogies. Um, it's an which, anonymy. An anonymy. <laughs> I don't know. A, a series of nine books uh, called the Typhonian, the Typhonian series. And <laughs> the, 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 the Tale of Fire and Ice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> excuse me. They're very, very dense. They're very, very difficult to understand and to read. One but... thing, if, if you are planning to get into this shit, one thing I would recommend reading before you do any of that is Peter Lavender's book, The Dark Lord, which... Oh, that's probably the best and indeed the only book you need to read about Because this. it actually makes this thing more or less coherent. Yeah. That's and a... does give does give a certain number of caveats that, like, yeah, you need to know not just about uh, Christian and Gnostic and Satanic traditions, but also voodoo and other belief you, systems. You need to know about that... voodoo, you need to know about the Yazidis, you it, need to know, yeah. All of which Kenneth Grant was extremely well-versed in, as as uh, by his own account. Yeah, <laughs> by one, Lavender's account. Because yeah, that's one of the curious things, that in the Book of the Law, when it's when there's a passage where it refers to what called the Obeya and the Wanger, which... <laughs> Shush. <laughs> That's nothing funny about the word wanger. Uh, and Crowley said that he never figured out what the Obey and the wanger were. But apparently these are actually very homophonic with voodoo concepts, which Crowley was not aware of, which Grant then discovered. Uh, supposedly. Mm. Supposedly, supposedly, supposedly. Anyway, one of the books where he talks about... One of the Typhonian books is called Outer Gateways. And there's a large chunk of this, which is a text called The Wisdom of Shulba. Emphasis on the bar. During the working of Grant's own magical circle called New Isis Lodge, they kind of constructed this from various channeling sessions, I'm assuming, and various like visions they experienced. And he co- ends up all codified together as the wisdom of Shulba, which I read on the train up here, and had a very strange experience where somehow, it wasn't quite a lost time experience, but it was sort of like, I was just sitting there reading it, and finished it, and then suddenly, oh, an hour has passed. Mm. that's kind of weird because like I know that doesn't sound like much but it was actually very very like sudden like a jolt experience when I looked at the time and I thought oh I've been doing this for an hour I thought I started this five minutes ago that's actually kind of strange mm. yes um, not unlike this podcast which has now been running for one hour and 18 minutes oh we're very very sorry um, one of <laughs> we've uh, been doing this for a really long time we can't stay as disciplined as we were with the hardware episode <laughs> the so, one of the passages in the Wisdom of Shulba reads, The lines lead below. As it is written, there are thrones underground, and the monarchs upon them reign over space and beyond. Invoke them in darkness, outside the circles of time, in silence, in sleep. In conjurations of chaos, the deep will respond. As the eye bleeds its tears, the mouth its blood, so also the egg of lamb, in slime encased, releases the lugs. Lugs. And here's where it gets even weirder. So one of the words that's used a lot in the Wisdom Shulba is Bell, the Temple of Bell, the Throne of Bell. I don't know what this means, because it's a really hard book, and I don't understand it. However, this is what Kenneth Grant points out. (laughs) I'm sorry, this is just so dumb. Do Um, it, do it, do it. There is an alternative, he says, there is an alternative interpretation of Lugs, which, although far-fetched, 
may be legitimately investigated, since it is typically of since it is typical of the paronomasia traditionally used by Kabbalists. That means against names. Okay. In modern times, the name Bella is associated with that of the actor who epitomised the vampire force, capitalised, in the screen version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bella Lugs, or Lugs, approximates too nearly to Bella Lugosi to be overlooked. (gasps) And he goes on to say, When Lugosi appeared in the role on stage in London in 1951, the stage production Bram Stoker always wanted... I, I, that is Kenneth Grant, discovered that he not only identified himself with the entity he had personified personified so many times, he also expressed admiration for Crowley's magic. Whether for the book or for the man was not clear. So, once again, if you're confused, you're correct to be, and we are very sorry. We're very, very sorry about how strange this all is. It's totally unlike occultists to just take some information they've, like, haphazardly come across and extrapolate wildly on things that sound like other things. There's a chapter in this book, Outer Gateways, called Creative Gematria, where Kenneth Grant literally says that lines of correspondence between occult numbers and occult names and occult ideas and concepts only exist in the mind of the magician... Therefore, they are what you ever, whatever How you convenient. want them to be. Convenient. Whatever you want to be, you can construct your own magical world, and literally anything can mean anything. Hence, Cthulhu doesn't have to be real for it to be real. Mm. All right, but right, like Slenderman, we have made it real. Ah, it is a call oh, back God. to our Blair Witch episode. Um, oh, man, this is getting really really dense and heavy anyway so the point the point of this why the reason why i'm talking about this is that there is this occult resonance with the character of dracula which does exist which has continued to echo down the years afterwards there is something really weird about this that has lived on that that yeah i i don't know fun side note um we did, um, back in my school, we did a uh, drama uh, drama class production. Well, not production. We, we acted out a couple of scenes and they were videoed. Um, and I was surprisingly selected to be Renfield in the um, in a kind of attempted adaptation of, um, of the stage play of Dracula because I was, I think for all intents and purposes, the most unkempt person in the entire school. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that leads us to... Um, Back to our thesis about, like, does it mean something or does it convey the sense of meaning something? And is that meaning that arises from the conveyance of the sense of meaning something the meaning in and of itself, which is a very, very strong and crucial current in occult thought, which uh, <laughs> leads us to um, necessarily explore what is the symbology of Dracula. Um, yeah. Of any in any adaptation in any sense, or or in the Dracula legend, um, or or the the folkloric tradition, but specifically in the novel, as far as we're concerned. But if we were to say, like, who would um, as a kind of, uh, I, I found this is um, this is something actually the Diane podcast do in the using using the tarot deck as a uh, as a kind of code, coda for um, identifying how things might fit into a um, a occult framework. Um, In both the book Dracula and the film Nosferatu, uh, uh, Orlok Dracula, what you will, would be very much uh, the role of the Magus. He is an all-powerful figure who rules all around him from a castle which resonates this intense presence uh, out into the world which he can control. 
and 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 yeah, and this has this has resonances in the occult tradition. But it also coming back to coming back to our discussion of the Weimar cinema movement. This is something Krakauer picks up on uh, with his um, more kind of modern Freudian slash Marxist interpret reading of how these things functioned, which is um, that Nosferatu is the archetype of the tyrant. Uh, Krakauer was very fixated on this idea that um, that the cinema, even before Germany had its own tyrant in the form of um, of that <laughs> the dumpy Austrian, um, <laughs> we we had um, people like we had Nosferatu, but we had Freida from um, uh, Joe Freiderson from Metropolis. We had Doctor Mabuse. We had Mabuse. 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 Quite, Mabuse. Uh, we had um, we had Mephisto in uh, F. W. Murnau's later and fucking brilliant adaptation of the Faust legend. Um, but yeah, it's it's this like he he, ident- he identifies the archetype of the tyrant as being something present in the German consciousness, and this perhaps ties in with um, with the occulted occulty reading of the Magus. Um, and also, like side note, there's a very, very good uh, short film uh, or doc- short documentary film created by the YouTuber H Bomber Guy, which we're going to link out to, where he talks about uh, the resonances of horror, where he identifies the vampire figure not as a fascistic tyrant, but as the presence of capitalism. Um, this idea that he's he's a vampire, he's this um, he's because we forget he's an aristocrat, he is an aristocratic figure, he's a boyar. Of um of Eastern European tradition um of of kind of the Slavic um uh, chivalric code where he is um he's inherited wealth inherited status drawing the life out of the proletariat and thus he must be staked immediately as is proper and godly mm. Mm. but as you said earlier this also um this presence of as well as being aristocratic in a way that um. Well, that's the thing. He's almost kind of uncanny in the sense that um, in the world, in the world of Dracula, in the world that Bram Stoker depicts, he what he's presenting a Western. He's presenting an orderly nineteenth-century world into which um, into which Nosferatu is this invasive force, and so he's he's like an old order of chivalry which has become alien, um, and he's he's both he's. If we're thinking in conspiratorial terms, uh, the, uh, the calling back to that work we've referenced now a number of times, Jesse Walker's United States of Paranoia, where he creates this uh, typology of conspiracy theories, where it's the the enemy above, the enemy enemy below, the enemy in, within, the enemy without. He is both. He is simultaneously all four of these things. Um, he is um, he's the enemy above because he is an aristocrat. He's the enemy below because he is subhuman. He is feral, and that's something that is very very key to something I want to talk about later. Um, he's the enemy within because he has invaded this internal space uh, through duplicitous means. But he is the enemy without because he is from the mysterious east. He is from far away. He is from a land which has, unlike England, unlike German. well, Germany's actually, is, its borders have been notoriously fluid, but England has been an island. Um, or Britain. Britain. Britain has been an island. England has been um, the rich bit. Uh, <laughs> the, the dominant faction. Um, he's from this place where he's from a land that doesn't quite exist. Uh, he's from a sort of spectral landscape. A haunted landscape. A haunted landscape, and he is the thing that's drifted in on the winds from parts unknown. And this chimes in phenomenally with the um, idea of the weird, which we love 
the, the, which is our bread and butter on this damn podcast, um, and has heady, heady references to H.P. Lovecraft. So I think it's actually kind of fruitful to spend a little bit of time talking about the relationship between the weird and the gothic, because there's a, especially we should, like one thing we certainly shouldn't imagine is that the weird. Um, appeared like it, it, it appeared sui generis you know but it's, it's that it just appeared fully formed of course it had you know sort of like lovecraft's biggest literary influences uh, edgar Allan poe you mm. know it's sort of like like the gothic is it's more like uh, the weird is a crystal it's got kind of the drawing mineral crack characteristics from the rocks around it so like the weird blossoms out of the gothic in a certain sense uh so the key points so, I don't know, like, when it comes to defining genres, a notoriously difficult thing to do, and I've kind of more or less arbitrarily selected John Bowen's essay uh, about the the points of defining the Gothic from the British Library website, where he suggests that the defining features are that uh, Gothic fiction tends to take place in a location which is exotic or otherwise strange, often but not necessarily in a distant land. It's about the intrusion of the archaic or the ancient into the modern. Um, there's a focus on the threat of power or being constrained, for example, falling under uh, Count Orlok's spell, being trapped in his castle. Uh, there's a tendency to imply rather than explicitly show horror, though um, the notable uh, exception to this is the monk, which is notoriously like very, very graphic. Because oh, the monk is trash. Uh, and <laughs> it is pop trash. And interestingly... Anti-Catholic pop trash. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, shout, back, shout call out to our last episode about Blood and Satan's Claw. M.G. Lewis. Wasn't The Monk also, like, one of the first novels to actually, like, depict gay sex? Because that's oh. just... That's just how vile these Catholics are. <laughs> Sometimes the, the men and, and other men and, and the women and other women. I don't know why I'm doing that voice. This is our best episode. <laughs> um... And another point that John Bowen defines uh, or uses uses to define the Gothic is radical doubt that there's this implica- there's the implication of something totally beyond human reason, something truly supernatural, but kind of goes hand in hand with the doubt that anything, even the seemingly miraculous, could truly be unexplainable. That maybe everything can actually can actually be understood in terms of material science. I'm feeling distinctly vulnerable without my prayer beads this time around. <gasps> and I'm an atheist. Oh dear, oh dear. I'm sorry, I should have brought them with me. I uh You've got your Saint Christopher. I do have my Saint Christopher. <laughs> right, I brought you a Saint Christopher, which you have not worn. It's in my bag somewhere. Would you like my Saint bracelet? My yes, trashy Saint please. bracelet. There you go. Oh god, I'm becoming Jonathan Harker. Because he's like, oh I I I, I don't like this, this, uh, this hysterical gypsy woman has given me a cross and is making cross signs. It's like I don't believe in this shit. And then suddenly it's like, oh, this is the shit that could save me from this hell. Um, oh God. So I hung up. So I, um, I finally got round to framing my master certificate recently. I've hung it up on my wall, and like they gave me two hooks, and I thought, oh, good, I can use the second hook to drape like my my rosary, my Anglican chaplet on it. I put it up there, and immediately realised, oh God, I'm just gonna become a Catholic grandmother, aren't I? That's just what I'm gonna be. Oh dear. So, but key points defining the weird. I mean, it's even more difficult defining the weird than it is the gothic. And again, I've arbitrarily selected uh, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer's stuff about what is the weird. They're Jeff- doing a lot of good work. I I really like like people get some people have got kind of snob. I'm not gonna say snobby, but I, okay, I say snobby. I just mean some people I know 
we know didn't like Annihilation or the Summer Reach trilogy. I really like the Summer Reach trilogy. Like I really sympath- liked Annihilation. People have been more sympathetic than, to the films than the books, I think, in the last... I, I, I really like the Summer Reach trilogy. I, 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 I mean, admittedly, I kind of read the last two books over the course of a fortnight while I had the flu, which was also the same time when I was trying to watch... Tw- uh, the third season of Twin Peaks, which kind of, was both the best and worst idea I ever had. But um, honestly, I think I, I really, I really like Jeff Andermir. I really like the Summer Reach trilogy. I think it's a really interesting work, and I don't believe it is derivative of um, Road Tide Picnic. Sean, I haven't read any of his stuff. Well, you ought to. Ooh, any of his non-critical essays. I've read a couple of introductions he's done to different things, and I read bits of the anthology that he put together with Anne Vandermeer, and it was very, very good. I will buy you Annihilation for your birthday. People aren't going to listen to this. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> for, okay. <laughs> Bad defining. Uh, okay, the weird. So, weird fiction. Difficult to define, and some people have argued it's not even a specific genre, but it's more of an attitude or a tendency that um, can't be cleanly separated from uh, other more rigorously defined genres. However, we can outline a definition all the same. So, weird fiction tends to avoid established traditional monsters like the vampire, the zombie, and the werewolf. Uh, To quote Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, the most unique examples of the weird instead largely chose paths less trodden and went to places less visited, bringing back reports that still seem fresh and innovative today. Uh, um, should we have a Mark Fisher interlude? Uh, basically, Mark Fisher gave a very, very good example of like how to define the weird against traditional gothic fictions, which is the sense that uh, vampires and werewolves are frightening because they're unreal. Uh, and But at the same time, the threat they pose is something more or less intelligible. They're going to bite you, they're going to infect you. Whereas uh, he put the definition of something that's scary and weird as a black hole. As in, we know it exists, it is real. But our ability to comprehend it is so very limited that it holds an instinctive terror which is more profound than any gothic legacy. This being said, um, Thomas Ligotti, who is... Um, yeah, um, uncontroversially rega- regarded as a purely weird writer. Um, one of his stories, actually one of my favourite stories of his, is uh, The Lost Art of Twilight, which is just a vampire story. Mm. It's just a really, really good vampire He's story. He's good with that. He's good at taking an innovative approach to um, like more traditional uh, gothic uh, trends. The vampires in, in it are, are like, very, very frightening. Mm. There's this like implication of something, because he makes them exceptionally alien. Well, I want to talk about that in a little bit. Um, um, anyway, so anyway, um, weird fiction also tends to have a contemporary setting uh, or a modern setting uh, rather than a period setting but often it will be involved with the fringes or the extreme like edges of the modern of so like where, where things are breaking down so uh, at, at times of war at times at like places of social uh, collapse for instance like Weimar Germany uh, and often but not always the what I'm just going to call the other force uh, that is encountered in the weird story might not even isn't even strictly speaking supernatural, which is what we've just what you just said that you know the werewolf, the vampire don't exist, the black hole does exist. Rather, the other force in um, in weird fiction it's a previously unknown natural form, and as such, there's often, but again, not always, a certain fascination with science, uh, archaeology, and other methods of arriving at rational knowledge. And, and that precisely being the source of horror, like the like the the fame, like the the fantastically clinical descriptions of the elder things in the mountains of madness. But there's also this feeling that the uh, there's something that these rational methods 
can't go beyond. There's a limit to them, uh, and there isn't a uh, and there isn't a recourse to a potential rational explanation um, that can make it okay. It's not like how you know Scooby Doo taking the mask off. Rather. <laughs> Um, Brilliant reference. <laughs> the rational explanation is so hideous that it would actually be more comforting for the other force to just be a ghost uh-huh. or something. It's just su- something as ordinary as that. And this is the thing. When I was attempting and failing to read Dracula, I couldn't help but notice there were certain weird parallels that it had thematically had with the work of H.P. Lovecraft. In, so, and this is like especially true uh, in the early sections. There's this sense of modern civilization being under threat due to the return of uh, of an ancient atavistic force, mm. which again, sort of, like, it's kind of a gothic trope. The like the encounter of the ancient, but with Lovecraft, uh, like most especially perhaps with the Call of Cthulhu, is the return of something so very ancient that is coming back something that comes came long long before us the and the, so this notion of the unspeakable return is often present in lovecraft's works uh, and and frequently the narrator will discover a trace of deep history that kind of undercuts uh inevitably his faith in modernity and he will be just dis- and again inevitably he will be destroyed by the encounter uh, the vampire count while not a figure from deep history, in the same way that Cthulhu is, uh, is still an arrival from a very alien past. Uh, and it is a past that has th- this potential to destroy the present all the same. More uncomfortably, but if anything more real... is Certainly more Lovecraftian. Lo- certainly more Lovecraftian, and more definitely present in the text, is racial anxieties. This comes in two ways. Firstly... Um, there's the simple fear of the foreigner in Dracula and in Nosferatu with Dracula Orlok being uh, a deviant in a certain sense he's a degenerate the enemy below Uh, he's literally non-human and like this is more emphasised in the depiction of Nosferatu of course but it is present in Dracula he isn't human he's something very 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 foreign he preys on women he drives people insane. He is monstrous. He is other. He is. He's foreign. He's. He's Johnny Foreigner. He's not us. He's different from us, and he's come here. Uh, a friend of mine has also pointed out to me that Dracula was written during uh, the mass immigration of Eastern European Jews to this country due to the pogroms in Russia. And there is something kind of uncomfortably close um, between the the, dr- the vampire drinking blood and the canard of the blood libel. The foreigner arriving and literally taking our women and our children and taking their blood and feeding from it. Again, call back to our Blair Witch episode. Call back um, to Blair Witch. And the lovely, lovely, wonderful medieval death trip podcast. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that Dracula was written less than 10 years before the Aliens Act 1905 was passed. Which was it literally was... called that? Yeah, it's called the Aliens Jesus. Act. Uh, and the point of the Aliens Act was to keep the Jews out because there, was, the few was, there were too many of them and we don't want them here because they're Jewish, they're other, they're not us. Britain was bad as well. <laughs> this was, yeah, yeah. We've always been, we've, we've always been the bad guys. Uh, <laughs> what? Whoa. Uh, that either carves our audience or doubles it. 
so but this is another there's another element to the racism though and i think this is actually this is something very very curious that there's this long passage uh in dracula where he's talking to harker and he starts talking about his ancestors mm. And he is very proud of his ancestry. And he talks about how I am from noble blood. I'm from a, a warrior race. My people didn't bow to the Turks when they came. We fought them. Unlike the others, unlike the other ones here, we won. We stood up. That is the blood that runs in my veins. And there's such an emphasis in the idea of the Count having an, a superior stock in this scene that kind of implies part of the anxiety of the race, the, part of the racial anxiety of the novel is that maybe in a certain sense we deserve to be consumed by the foreigner because we have lost the strength of our blood. Because we relied on Eastern Europeans, we relied on the Russians, uh, we relied on the, on the Slavs to do our dirty work, keeping uh, Western Europa clear of the foreign influence you know the Huns never made it as far as Britain. This is something that's actually very powerfully depicted in the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula mm. where the whole like the 50 minute opening is Dracula, the historical Dracula um, Vlad himself like or like a, like a fictionalised version of him rather fighting, precisely fight, fighting for Turks fighting the Muslims. Yeah as, okay. as the historical uh, Vlad the Impaler did the, the order of the dragon from which his name comes, Dracula Dragon Dracul, Dracul comes from was a chivalric order that was that was established as part of the war with um the uh, with the encroaching ottoman turks as they as as the muslim empires of the east got closer and closer to europe because they uh, and indeed were a real presence in western yeah. europe because like uh, spain was a caliphate for hundreds of years yeah and that's why they had all the really good occult science yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we, um, we forget that we forget well, no, um, to, I mean, to correct myself sorry spain wasn't a caliphate it was an emirate it was it was ruled by an em- it was ruled by uh, an emir mm. uh and indeed sort of like you actually had i mean sort of like it had its own various horriblenesses of, of course because it was it was a theocratic society but if you were jewish that was probably that was the best place to live in europe yeah certainly better than a reconquistor culture that came after as we talked about in our last episode about like the um, the Spanish Inquisition and the um, and the, uh, the 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 paranoia that surrounded the conversos. I forget what his name, but the Ottoman Sultan during the and uh, the expulsion of the Jews. There's a wonderful quote from him because like he because like one he he ordered that the em- sort of like um, all the Jews who were being expelled from Spain should be welcomed in his in his empire. And so one little quote he says to he basically says Spain's lost is my is my empire's gain. Wow. Um, but there's also like. There's, if we're thinking about both Dracula and the well, no, if we're thinking about the historic Vlad the Impaler, it's it's like I said again, like they did our dirty work. The, you know, Vlad the Impaler, he's called that because after a notable military victory against the Ottomans, uh, one of the things he did was impale ton like well, legend has it. I think history has it as well that he impaled a whole ton of them on spikes um, as a kind of early form of psychops. So, you know, any invading force that would come that way would see like, oh shit, this is a bunch of our people being impaled. Impalation, it's also worth mentioning just how horrifying impalation was. They would take a blunt spike and they would ram it up into uh, the anus and just up. Yeah, up, up, until, out, until they're out of your mouth. And the the reason it was a blunt spike was because that meant that you hemorrhaged less and would last longer. As uh, as Alan Rickman says in uh, in Robin Hood when he's talking about uh, carving someone's heart out with a spoon, it's blunt, it'll hurt more. <laughs> 
I don't know why that's my Alan Rickman voice, but that's the one I went for. That's not what Alan Rickman sounds that sounded like. God rest his soul. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah, there's up yeah, and there's other stories about um, Drac- about 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 Vlad the Imperial. So like when um, some emissaries, oh, some emissaries arrived. They wore turbans. Of course, they didn't remove their turbans because that wasn't their custom. Mm-hmm. And when he said, "Well, haven't you? Why haven't you removed your headgear in the presence of a king?" He says, "Well, it's not our custom." He says, "Ah, oh, well, in which case I shall reinforce your custom. Nail their turbans to their heads." Uh, yeah, because the and this is why, like Vlad is is a hero of the far right because, like, the idea is that so, like, he knew what needed to be done to preserve, again, preserve our blood, preserve our culture and our heritage and our ancestry. Vlad is love, baby, don't hurt me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we can, um, uh, we we um, like, I mean, also, we can't talk about um. Uh, occultism and Lovecraft and Crowley without mentioning uh, again Peter Lavender's book about um, w- one of the things that comes up as well when I, in relation to what I talked about with uh, Dracula as the Magus uh, this idea of psychic communications across long distances which um, if anyone uh, uh, this is perhaps giving the game away a bit with uh, Peter Lavender's book but he puts it probably a lot better than I'm about to do which is the sense that um, that these messages could be conveyed in a kind of you, his thesis. Okay, so his thesis was that um, well, the story, the story. So the story goes: um, the call of Cthulhu mirrors the experience of um, of Alistair Crowley hearing about the uh, demonic, well, the demonic angelic teachings uh, that would eventually result in the Book of the Law when he was in Cairo. Well, specifically, it's to do with the. Um, I don't think it was the reception of the Book of the Law. It was, it was when he was going through the Enochian keys ah. when he was um, going on the kind of well, I suppose you've literally a vision quest when he was activating the different, like. Specific Enochian incantations that open the different spheres of mm. the ether, and one of them in particular, because like Crowley noted this all down very very rigorously, and in one of them he hears the word uh, Cthulhu mm. or something like that, and Crowley says he never understood what that word was, mm. and Lavender discovered that the day in Call of Cthulhu, where the Inspector breaks up the voodoo ritual. But a date is given for when this happened. Mm. And that is the actual same date that Crowley was performing this ritual. Yeah. And so he's... He, um, and, and also and also the date is of uh, when Cthulhu and Raleigh rises from the deep. And it's the implication is that this is a psychic shock that is felt across the world in the nightmares of sensitive dreamers. So the thesis, Lavender's thesis, is that Crowley and Lovecraft tuned into the same esoteric energy. The same... Well, to use... Um, occult terminology they both tuned into the current into the 93 current the thelemic current mm. and Cult, current 93 cracking band cracking band yes uh the and but crowley was equipped to understand what this was lovecraft was not and when lovecraft is talking about the terrible things that will happen when cthulhu rises he talks about excess and revelry like that's part going to be part of it we're just all going to be fucking each other for ages well Crowley imprecisely says, and part of the new eon that's arriving is we'll all be fucking each other mm-hmm. for ages. But uh, for Crowley, this is brilliant because of the because of who he was. While for Lovecraft, who was by all accounts uh, either either purely asexual or antisexual and like to, to a literally pathological degree, this is horrifying. Mm. But the point the point the point here the point here what is the point here the point here is that. Dracula exists in perhaps this same kind of magical framework. 
because he is the Magus, he is transmitting his own psychic force onto the world, transcending the boundaries of uh, geography. This is what the Renfield character is all about. That mm. uh, and there is the equivalent. I can't remember his name. But there's like, they merge several characters, and uh, there is a Renfield. It's called Nock. Isn't he also Harker Hooter's boss? He, he's also yeah. He's also the estate agent. He goes in, like the idea is he goes insane, and but Renfield is a different. It's a separate character, and he, that was uh, that was some very very economic script writing on the part of uh, Hen- Heinrich Gelin. Uh, shout out to that guy. And but the point is that like Renfield is detecting this transmission from the Count, and he's trying to prepare for his arrival. He's making straight the waves. He's. Oh god, he's making straight the way of the Lord. Mm. Mm. So basically, um, if we're going to be talking about Crowley, if we're going to be talking about Lovecraft, if we're going to be talking about Dracula in the same breath, uh, we essentially can't leave out the the, the concept of sex um, because, because, as well as being an alien force, as being a, a cult force, as being a psychic force. Dracula is a profound sexual force. He conveys a type of sexual magic. Uh, basically, he's he's um, this is this is coming from the uh, the conspiracy model again. The the idea that we've got the enemy above, we've got the enemy below, we've got the enemy from without invading and becoming the enemy within. He is a sexual force. He feeds on sex, and. This is significant because, as we were talking about when we were just talking about, like, the idea of, um, the idea... I'm going to drink some of your wine, I'm sorry. I didn't say you could. I'm sorry. Uh, I just need... I need this kick. Um, basically, if we're talking about, um, sexuality, he's, um... Going back to what we were talking about with, um, with, with Dracula the novel. Dracula and the, the, the whole... the world... That Bram Stoker creates of uh, sexual psycho, psychosexual social mores of the civility, uh, which contained a fundamentally ingrained misogyny, which I really want to talk about more as well. Um, it's this idea that he's a potent force because he's circumventing all the barriers they've kept up to protect their understanding of sexuality and how it should work, how it works in the Western world, how it works in Britain and or Visborg. Uh, and and he gets around it because he is he's the force from without. But there's this fundamental sense which runs through a lot of 19th century sexuality and writing about society as a whole that the outer sphere, the political sphere, the public sphere, the body politic is a masculine world. Um, it is it is the one where rational and reasonable things happen. And the feminine world is the interior world. It is the world of the homemaker. It is the world of the wife and the house. Um, and it is, but at the same time, um, well, and, 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 and Nosferatu is circumventing that because he, he comes in, he's able to break down these barriers and he comes into contact with the, the feminine world. Um, and this is significant in light of what we were talking about in context of the uh, Blood on Satan's Claw episode, this idea that sec- well, the whole concept of, 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 of sexuality in the 19th century was this idea that um, mas- that sex was... Um, sex had a... Sex underwent a kind of weird reversal in that now, now socially, we have this understanding amongst the kind of disgusting world of Reddit and the internet where sex is... Uh, 
uh, well, which is which is what the incel folk talk about a lot, where um, mas- male people, masculine people, are seen as the more active sexual agency, and women are desirable in their passivity. Um, but for a long time, the reverse was true in culture and art and things, where we understood males as being essentially um, Puritan, and we, this is a, a wild generalization, but mar- men as being very much Puritan and only concerned with sex in the rational and uh, productive aspects of sexuality, whereas women were, as far as they were concerned, nymphomaniacs. They were the ones that were irrational. They were they were subject to aggressive sexual forces, and um, that's that's where Nosferatu, that's where Dracula's power arises from, because he's an irrational force preying on this residual presence of feminine sexuality that has been consigned to the home, but it turns out not entirely consigned or entirely protected by this structure that men have constructed as the home. And that's why in the book, um, not in the film because they complete these two characters, but why in the book it's not Mina, the, the, the engaged, the responsible, the, the, the dower, not dower, but you know the the conservative. Uh, uh, she's Lucy more together. Mina Harker. She's... she's more together. She. Um, it's her kind of wild, unmarried, dangerously unmarried friend Lucy ha- uh, Lucy Westenra, who is the initial subject of uh, Dracula's uh, vampiric incursions. He's the one he has. She's the one he has the most power over because she's unmarried. Um, because she's uh, not been protected by the society yet. And so his um, his power is more profound in that respect. And if we're thinking about this in, in terms of a Crowleyan context, sexuality is at the heart and is the source of a lot of potency of Crowleyan magic. And this also leads into kind of more pagan traditions about like, why why is blood the central focus of this novel? Um, and and that and that keys into the sense of you know blood is a very um, is very much a currency in magical literature and magical uh, belief systems because it holds this kind of power um, and it's something that tran- that um, that is able to cross over into across like go go by way of the the masculine barriers into the feminine world because femininity is um, has this ancient um presence of blood magic or the dionys the uh the the dianic blood uh sacraments the blood um the blood mysteries as those goddamn turfs on the internet like to call it um uh, mm-hmm. the, the, you know it's, it's with us to this day in the crowleyan legacy of wiccanism um and and yeah and that is um that is the source of Dracula's power in a lot of ways. And that also creates a curious question of what is Renfield in this respect? Is Renfield uh, some sort of sexual neophyte? Is is Renfield being created as a kind of queer character almost? Because Is Dracula going to do the sex at Renfield as well as Lucy? Well, why is he so Does under Renfield his power? want Dracula to do the sex? Are we looking him? into some sort of vampiric, occult, ancient leather family setup? Did Bram Stoker want Dracula to do the sex at him? Mm. All of these are questions. Yes, these are all questions. But also that leads us into a wider understanding of, um, we talk, again, calling back to our last episode, nature, the state of nature. Um, 
Um, state of nature is this wild, uncontrollable thing that must be tamed by the Protestant Puritan forces of England and indeed Lutheran Germany. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of crossover there. A lot of a lot of resonances between um, the, the 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 wider concept of uh, European Northern European um power residing in its uh discipline in its uh in its sola fide understanding of the world and the rational interpretation of the world thinking about the judge uh with sean's i guess correct interpretation of what the judge (laughs) represented in that film in blood and satan's claw i've just given up arguing but um so we have that dracula is a sexual force and then when we take this into the Lovecraftian dimension, uh, we get the idea of the weird, and then that immediately calls to mind the fact that uh, nature and biology has its own resonances within um, within weird fiction. We've talked about, uh, the, 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 going back to the Mark Fisher definition of the weird as an abundance of presence, an abundance of uncontrollable, biological, wild strange mysterious power um and and what what nosferatu does is it brings um it it brings together these ideas we have the figure of um dr bulwer who is uh the stand-in for dr van helsing um in a in a way more in the film than in the um than the book what he appears to be doing is merging these concepts of uh, sexuality and the power and the mysterious presence of nature um, with the occult presence of the vampire and of the of the occult rituals of the East. Um, and there's that crucial. There is a crucial scene where um, where Dracula, well, where 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 um, Doctor Bulwer Van Helsing is teaching a class of students and he's showing them a Venus flytrap um, but he also shows them a uh, magnified um, polyp it is, uh, it is a kind of uh, a mac- it's a kind of pond life essentially, it's a type of um, not microscopic it's, you, can, you can't see it with the, with, the, um, with the naked eye but it's certainly way bigger than something that could be rightly considered microscopic in biological terms but he shows this polyp eating another small uh, pond-dwelling life form, some sort of plankton. Um, and he says, ah, yes, not unlike a vampire. Um, and that is one of the one of the things that struck home to me because it's, it's when he realised that, um, that Nosferatu, it's a body horror film. A def- you know, it is, it, that saying Nosferatu is a body horror film is as defensible as calling Shivers a body horror film, as far as I'm concerned. Um... But what he does crucially in that scene, he's not hes not shining the light of reason onto the world of the occult. He's not saying these mysterious things that we've taken to be occult presences are in fact natural phenomenon. What he is doing is showing natural phenomenon and imbuing them with an occult presence. Um, in, in much the same way as um, as a as a long-standing tradition in uh, in early modern medicine and indeed medieval medicine would do, uh, not unlike the figure of Paracelsus. 
Because that's the thing about Dr. Bulwer is when he's introduced, the intertitle describes him as a Paracelsian, as a follower of, pa- of uh, Paracelsus. And Paracelsus was a, um, he was a very, very influential, um, oh God, he's not medieval, I suppose, is he? He's, like, he's, he's post-medieval. Well, we, we, that, 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 that goes back to an old understanding of like, when did medieval stop? When did Renaissance begin? Because as far as Italians are concerned, the Renaissance began in the 12th century. <laughs> Whereas uh, we, in the complete backwater that was England at the time, didn't really get up to speed until the late 15th century, uh, 16th century. Well, but so Paracelsus, he was around 15th to the 16th century. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> but uh, the ideas that he talked about were present before, but he, he formulated them as Sean is going to talk about. Yeah, so Paracelsus, you don't need to spend that much time actually discussing sort of what the content of Paracelsus's belief system was, you'll be grateful to hear. Oh, uh, it was ma- good though. There's a good uh, time article uh, episode about it. Where he t- the point is, the point here is that uh, for Paracelsus, um, he was an early, he was a physician, he was very interested in chemistry and alchemy and hematicism, and again, this is what we've already said, that what we now call the occult was, was considered to be an expression of the scientific as well at the time. So, but the thing that is curious that there'd be re- be this reference to, to Paracelsus, and especially, specifically, he's introduced, like we said, um, Dr. Paul was introduced to us demonstrating a Venus flytrap to his students, and this is described as him revealing a great and terrible secret of nature, because the the implication here that Bulwer as a Paracelsian is that he isn't just a scientist, he is also an occultist, like like Lucy, you've already said. And in a certain sense, he's arguably closer to Agrippa than that Paracelsus. Yeah. In that Agrippa constructs... Is that uh, Cornelius Agrippa? Mm. Uh, is Agrippa or Agrippa? I'm going to say Agrippa because that's how they said it in I, Claudius. No, very well then. Agrippa. Agrippa. Like Herod uh, Agrippa. Agrippa, he... Um, with his his whole notion that, the, that, um, that, that cosmology is inherently occult and that the world is in fact that the ordinary existing things that we encounter in the world actually possess occult dimensions which aren't visible to us or aren't knowable to us, uh, and except for the initiate, of course. And so when Bulwer presenting uh, a fly being eaten by Venus flytrap and a polyp being eaten by a bigger polyp, being pre- presenting this to his students as a mystery, as an occult mystery to be taught is very close to this tradition of demonstrating the occult dimension to ordinary things. And the implication here is that one of the great mysteries of the world, one of the great terrible secrets of the world, is that everything eats everything else. That the vampire is just a particularly potent expression of the inherent predatory nature of all things. Do you mean to tell us that the vampire is Leviathan? The vampire is Leviathan. Excellent. Ah. Was the vampire Behemoth and Dr. Bulwer Leviathan? Everything is Leviathan. Everything is Leviathan. (laughs) Everything is Leviathan. And I think it's actually very interesting, this idea that at base level everything is consumption of something else and imbuing oneself with something else's essence. It's really interesting if you look at Renfield in this regard, because in the novel, Renfield uses the food he's given in the asylum he's locked up in to lure flies to his room. And the flies he then catches and uses to lure spiders to his room. And he feeds the flies to the spiders. And then the spiders, he lures them to lure uh, starlings, little birds into his room. And he feeds the spiders to the, st- to the birds. And then he asks his doctor... Wait, can I do this bit? May I have a kitten? 
Yes, he specifically asks for a kitten or a little cat. And he says, I only asked for a kitten because I didn't think you would give me a cat. Um, <laughs> and it's very obvious that he's going to feed the birds to the cat and then eat the cat. Or is he going to feed the, um, the, the cat to one of his guards and then eat the guard? <laughs> Feed the birds to the cat, the cat to the guards, the guards to the, to the him. And Do you him remember to the this vampire. old this old uh, song we all sang in school, right? <laughs> <laughs> the um, and so why is he doing this? Okay, so the I, so the implication here is that he's performing something alchemical. He's taken the energy from his food. Mm-hmm. He's transmuted it into the flies' energy, then the flies' energy into spider energy, and then so on, so on, so on. It and it's almost as if he's performing a kind of act of like pranic hemoalchemy almost. That he's distilling vital energy into higher and higher forms for him to then consume. Big and big pranic energy. Big pranic energy. And he doesn't get to do this. He's denied the cat. So he tries to try jump start by eating the birds and just gets sick. Uh, I don't know why he thought eating the cat would make him any less sick, but but yeah, but that seems to be an implication of what we see being taught in the film that everything is transmission of energy and transformation of energy into new forms. There is an accepted section actually from a different uh, variorum edition of the novel where he kind of sicks up a, a kind of owl pellet of bird feet and feathers. <laughs> There uh, isn't. <laughs> if you want to learn a little bit more about this, then check out uh, Eugene Thacker's book, In the Dust of This Planet, which has some meditations on the agriculture and the occult philosophy. Or even just check that book out, because it's really good. It's a really good book. Mm. Uh, but going back to the biological. But going back to the biological and going back to the concept of Dracula and going back to the film, 20, 1922, Nosferatu, directed by F.W. Munau and produced by Alban Grau, um, what we see, what is just to remind no- you what it is we're actually talking about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what we see in this film is um, Nosferatu depicted in a very interesting way, which I think we touched on very briefly before. I can't remember at this point, but um, but we have a legacy of the vampire, which is um, the sexy aristocratic vampire. We have the we have the suave, dignified, haughty. Some might say. Uh, Bella Lugosi, I think Bella Lugosi did 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 have this angle. He looked like a kind of he he looked like a kind of new wave um, synth player. Uh, he he had he had the big colours. He had the dramatic thing. He had the widow's peak. He was very sexy. He was very civilized. Um, and uh, this was actually a model of the vampire, which was created not by uh, Bram Stoker, but by um, uh, earlier writer John Polidori, who was uh, Dr. Polidori, who, interesting, interesting side note about Polidori is the fact that we all know the book Frankenstein, right? Uh, we all know the hit. Well, we may not know the history of the book Frankenstein, and probably when we, I'm, I guess we're going to have to do an episode on Frankenstein at some point. So I'm going to truncate this as much as possible. But basically, um, Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, and Doctor John Polidori got together in a house on a holiday in Switzerland and had a contest of who could think up the scariest thing. Yes, and they were all dicks to Doctor John Polidori because he was only actually brought along in case one of them got sick. But he was actually <laughs> a literary master in his own right. But the story he wrote was about vampires <laughs> and um and his depiction of the vampire was as the kind of uh genial bonhomie uh uh sexy vampire archetype that would become the mainstay of hammer horror films and most of vampire cinema right up until 
uh, the revival of the grizzly vampire in films like Near Dark, where they're presented as kind of feral, uncontrollable, disgusting hobo vampires. And the disgusting hobo vampire, that is what we are seeing in Nosferatu. He is not sexy. He is not glamorous. He is depicted and, you know, issuing for the time being all the uh, profoundly anti-Semitic tropes tied in with this. He looks like a rat. He is a he is a disgusting, feral, bald, pointy-eared, long-nosed, um, vermin vampire who is bringing a, not just a profoundly occult or abstract presence, he is a, he is Nosferatu, he is the plague-bearer, he is bringing the sickness of uncontrollable sexuality and the uncontrollable crucible of bacteria into the um, into the mannered and healthy Western world. He is he is disgusting, and and he was he was every bit that. Um, and and Max Schreck's depiction of him as such is remarkable in that respect. Um, but also going back again to how this connects with the body horror genre and how this connects with Shivers when we talked about Shivers. The fact that body horror had its origins in this period, had its origins in Freudian writing, had its origins in um, in the bioterrors of a later age, even before J.G. Ballard had articulated these principles. Um, one of the recurrent themes in um, in surrealist literature, which you know we explained the kind of the legacy of Cronenberg there, um, was this fixation on uh, intense, uncontrollable natural forces as the weirdness that was able to circumvent or transcend the supposedly controlled and mannered world of the of the early 20th century that they were invading as part of the modernist panic that uh, the control was never really theirs um and and yeah and so this is this is pure bioterror um and also um feeding into that it's it's no surprise that um the premiere for well, I, I say no surprise. I don't know the the specifics of this, but it's 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 a wellspring of speculation. But the premiere for Nosferatu was held in the Berlin Zoological Museum. Make of that what you will. I think that's perfect. I think that's amazing, and I I, I envy any person who experienced that long dead though they may be. Um, but again, this feeds back into Nosferatu as the sexual presence. And this is something uh, Siegfried Krakauer, again, drawing on his own kind of Marxo-Freudian interpretation of how how silent film functioned. He talks about um, sexuality. Sexuality, again, going back way to the intro where he talked about, you know, censorship was out the window at this point. The the, the Kaiser was gone. We could talk about sex, finally. Uh, This was a period of immense sexual uh, progressive... Yes, progressiveness. Uh, in sexual progressiveness and liberation, at least in terms of talking about these things. It led to the earth-shattering discoveries of the trans person and the homosexual, in fact. Which had never existed to this day. They only existed as abstract uh, theoretical uh, composites, not unlike the continent of Australia. Indeed. But, um, <laughs> or the North Pole. They were the unknown. They were the black hole. I've got a whole essay about this I'm going to try and publish soon. But, um, but crucially... Uh, this was the era of Magnus Hirschfeld and the Institute for um, Sexual Sexual Wissenkraft. This is um, sex was something um, they they knew about, but suddenly they knew that it, there was something more to it, that there was some sort of abstract dimension to it. But at the same time, this with this coincided with a profound anxiety about sexuality, which Siegfried Krakauer. Um, is it take a sip of wine? I'm getting all foamy. 
Thank you, Sean. Um, <laughs> Siegfried Krakauer talks about this as being symptomatic of a country that has recently experienced total war, in that we had a generation of young men who um, were taken into taken into the soldier's life at what was often a very early age of like, you know, as young as like 14, 15. Um, and they would have been trained, but trained in military things, but their first encounter with sex may have well been with a doctor telling them, right, you're a soldier now, you're going to occupy towns, these towns are usually in France, and will contain prostitutes, and you're going to have to watch out for venereal disease. And then that must have, for a whole generation, that stuck with them. It's like, venereal disease is a thing. And Nosferatu, he is venereal disease. I mean, people have talked about Nosferatu as a weird precursor to the HIV epidemic, and like the the mass death that arose arose from that. You know, we, we have that profoundly unsettling scene where all the coffins are being led out of the buildings and it's uh it's suddenly this weird sexual death plague force that has struck um what they what they assume to be a civilized German town and no one wants to talk about it. Um that is that is um that is the horror of Nosferatu um beyond anything else. And it's raised up to this occult dimension, but at the same time, no, this is not just a cult. This is a thing that's actually happening, and that's a thing that could happen. We all must be aware of Nosferatu, whatever form he takes. On a different note, to go back to uh, E. Elias Merridge's uh, film Shadow the Vampire... Which, uh, as you'll recall, dramatised the production of Nosferatu. Mm. Um, Merridge is a very interesting guy in his own right. He is uh, a devotee of hermeticism and, the, and other occult disciplines. This is something that's very real to him, which is probably one of the reasons he was drawn to this project in the first place. But one of the things that's... One of the things that is just very, very strange about this is one of the producers in the same way that Alban Grau was a producer on Nosferatu, one of the producers of Shadow the Vampire was Nicolas Cage. Mm. Nicolas Cage is, is a strange guy. Like, not just, like, funny man strange, but, like, he's he's a Freemason. He's involved with... He has very strange ideas. He bought that haunted house. He bought a house in which, like, hundreds of slaves were massacred and kept... It's haunted, and he paid an extraordinary amount of money. That's why he's still making films, because he's 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 very, very broke right now. Yeah. Because uh, he... Because, uh, like many an occultist before him, he has invested extraordinary and stupid amounts of money in, um, in bizarre occult projects that nobody understands. He's already constructed his own tomb in New Orleans, which is a pyramid with the ins- Latin inscription Omnia Ab Uno, which I'm assuming means all is one. Or- uh... Uh, all from one. All from one. Ab is the from. Oh, uh, all from one. Um, oh my God, loads of people have kissed his shrine, even though he's not dead. There's, there's a lipstick on it. Oh my God. Um. So, <laughs> and he's also I hear down the grapevine. He's also a member of an esoteric Masonic lodge in Glastonbury, and his he, film. He, he, the, he yeah yeah. His film company, the film company which produced Shadow of the Vampire, is called Saturn Films. And you will, of course, recall that the occult order Alban Grau founded after Nosferatu was Fraternitus Saturni. He is Alban Grau. He is Alban Grau. Nicolas Cage is Alban Grau. Jesus Christ, we need to do an episode on just purely Nicolas Cage and what the hell he is up to. 
The greatest man to have ever lived, Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Kirk. Nicholas Kirk. Um, uh, that's why, like, he did all of the, the, the National Treasure films have loads of that Masonic shit in them because he's really into this. He's oh really into it. Like, he's a very, very strange man. There is a side note I wanted to bring up as we're talking about vampires, as we're talking about bizarre occulted shit, but, like... Um, well, going back to your point about, like, Bella Lugosi being this strange, strange occulted figure, um, he... It's it's not popular... Well, I found this out via the internet when I was a film student in 2004, but basically, um, he was buried during an open casket, casket funeral uh, in his own Dracula cape, and purportedly during this process, Vincent Price leaned over the body and said... Okay, Bella, you can cut it out now. <laughs> cut what out? Pretending to be dead? Yeah. Be a vampire? Who also, knows? Also, you know who paid for that funeral? Frank Sinatra. Oh. Um, who may also have had lots of ties to the mafia. Uh, that's oh, there's out- no may. There's no may about Frank Sinatra's mob <laughs> connections. Everyone knows that's true. Well, well, but then maybe he's a not... Uh, like, maybe, maybe there's an episode of The Sopranos where Nancy Sinatra has a cameo at a mob party, and the reason mm. she did it was to sort of like a little nod. And his definite son was a member of the Obama administration. <laughs> this is this is going into um, Sean. You need to resurrect uh, deep status. Oh, the pot that the, the, the uh, failed conspiracy theory podcast I attempted with a buddy, which one it's day not we failed. Were... It was very successful at what it did. Yeah, but we just weren't able to do it because the powers that the powers that be silenced us. We're going to do it again, though. Uh, we do have plans to resurrect it in a different form. But, anyway, but one mm. one uh, crucial crucial figure that we have talked about scandalously little so far in this episode is one F. W. Murnau. <laughs> and yeah, so we, we, you know, Nosferatu was an occult film. We know now why uh, Dracula was chosen as a subject. But why Murnau? Why, why in particular him? Because he was pe- specifically sought out by Alban Grau as the man who would bring about the great occult vision that he would he would transfer. And one of the takes on this is the fact that um, that cinema as a genre, and this is key, this is key to why it was Prana Films and not Prana Library Books, why it was um, why it was key, is the fact that cinema, cinema, this is, we're talking about the early days of cinema cinema as a, a medium as something that could possess its own kind of language and artistic nuance uh, was in its infancy or rather it was coming into its own as a proper fully fledged art form, and one of the things people understood about it was that unlike any genre that had come before, it was um, it was imbued with this amazing power to um, to possess people, to immerse them in the experience. Uh, that's actually one thing that um, uh, Mark Gatiss again talks about in um, the intro to his History of Horror, the thing, the thing that came before uh, uh, Horror Europa, which was that um, cinema, unlike any other medium before, was a it perfectly mirrored the well, he doesn't say this, but it does kind of perfectly mirror the occult experience because it's so immersive. You are entering Plato's cave and identifying the shapes that are being projected on the wall. And this projection on the wall is your entire depiction of the world. But this imbues the filmmaker with the power to shape the world. It may well be that uh, Alban Grau recognised this. He recognised that cinema, more than any other medium, had this capacity to carry his profound occult message in a way that transcended consciousness, in a way that transcended one's rational agencies and got right at the meat of the soul stuff of the mind um, and and convinced them of his piercing light of occulted truth. But, but at the same time, 
he chose Murnau because Murnau as Eisner not Murnau Murnau he chose Murnau. Murnau as the as the agent for this change because Murnau was the best he knew exactly what he was doing he was a visionary um, Lottie Eisner talks about this a great deal that Murnau he was he was just great and she talks very very disparagingly about Robert Viner um, and Cabinet of Dr Caligari even though Cabinet of Dr Caligari again. Alban Grau was there. He he had he put his own vision into supposedly. There. Supposedly, uh, supposedly he had the well. Supposedly, you know who else was on set? Alfred Hitchcock. Really? Yeah. Huh. He was present. He was present for that. Um, but um, but Murnau, unlike Viner, he knew what he was doing. He wasn't just being given something good to make something possible with. He had he understood expressionism. He understood it profoundly. He understood it as the lived. Dionysiac experience that it was, and he saw expressionism as the means to create this. And he, he, he ingrained the uh, expressionist principles of lived experience into the very gestures and expressions of the actors he was depicting on screen. And also, also, unlike Vina, who would rely on pure artificiality, well, Vina as well as most of that generation of uh, expressionist filmmakers would rely on that pure artificiality and consignment to the studio as um as the um as as the as the vehicle for these things um he would he would take these things out into the field he would look at nature actual real existing nature uh because you know Vismar was real uh, the woods were real. Dracula's castle was real. He would take it and imbue it with the expressionist power through his pure genius understanding of technique. Um, and I think that is what um, F.W. Mur- uh, is what Alban Grau saw in F.W. Murnau. And that is why Nosferatu was the brilliant, brilliant film that we would see. And we would see it in later films of, Nos- of, of F. F. W. Murnau. We, we saw it in his earlier works. He, he, um, his earlier works included things like the Der Janoskopf, um, a thing about Janus, the god Janus. Um, and then later, there's a very, very great visionary film he would produce in America during the early sound era called Sunrise, which I'm... T- I'm just going to say we'll do another episode on because that in and of itself is amazing. But... Um, but yeah, it, it had this profound ability to um, to compel, and that is why that is what's necessary to bring about the enlightenment that every occultist has ultimately, to some extent, sought through the creation of their works. And clearly, they achieved something because nearly a hundred years later, here is you, here is I, and here is you also, listener, talking about this still continuing the plague-like transmission of these ideas as they continue to circle around our brains, permeating the world and changing us all. Um, um, and I think... On that on that note, I think we might be done. I think we might have to say, um, listener, experiencer, friend, the joiner on this quest of vision, stay weird and keep it signal.